saving money on everything for your projects. Now at Menards, we have it all for garden and landscaping essentials. Visit our outdoor garden center today and update your backyard space. Grid accents lattice panels have a timeless design with an innovative design that's simple to install and requires almost no maintenance. Save big on lattice panel options at Menards. View our entire selection of garden center products today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. There's no place to escape to. This is the last time. On the left. <laughs> That's when the cannibalism started. What was that? All right. Again, I'm going to say first, before we begin this episode, (laughs) that massacres are not cool. Marcus? No, No, they're not. I know it's not cool. Of course they're not. I know that random <laughs> runaway bank robbery, robbery street crime uh-huh. and and crime gangs and it's not cool. No. None of it's cool. No. But <laughs> also, could I just clarify, this is the second intro we've done for this episode, yes. and obviously you're like, why did you redo it? Evidently, Henry started this last episode by saying massacres are cool, and then we I'm had to say, saying- no, Henry, you can't say massacres are cool, and then this is you correcting that just so the audience understands why we have this intro. I'm just saying, <laughs> things used to be kind of freer and more fun. <laughs> All right, this is the last podcast on the left. I am Ben with Marcus. Hello. And of course, we have gorgeous Henry Zabrowski in Los Angeles. I just want to drive a car fast. Like, I, know. I just want to have all that shit where you're just going like, hey, hey, like laughing at the wall, being like, <laughs> ah, the laws are on my back, yes, hey? And like, I want to, that's fun. Yeah. That's a fun lifestyle, I would but then l- what we're going to find out is the reality of this today's episode and the reality of a lot right. of these criminals was it was actually very rough living and there wasn't roman- anything romantic about it. No, no, I would love to see you full of road rage in a Model T. <laughs> just like, <laughs> just like, jumping, just like bumping down the road. Screw you! Get out of my way! And you're just yelling at deer and yaks because I don't even know if there were other cars on the road then. Um, all right, so why are we talking about this old-timey stuff? Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what they're wondering. It might be. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, today's episode, this is like a long time coming, right? Long, long time coming. Been wanting to do this for so long. And so I excited. Could, Marcus is like super thrilled. This is going to be the last podcast definitive history of Bonnie and Clyde. Now, Marcus has really given me the hit. I've really gotten history HIV for Marcus <laughs> because for so long I viewed it as boring. In school, I was bad at it. Right. Uh, as uh, Every class. The way I was taught in high school was the antiquated way where they didn't care if you were interested. Yeah. Right. It was just a list of facts. Right. Where I had a teacher who, st- who stood at the front of the class who just listed facts. We wrote down facts and then we did we did tests. Right. Of and that's all it was. Where nowadays kids, it's like teachers dressed up in costumes and they like they act it out and then they write out the answers for the tests for them with their hands and they make sure everybody's <laughs> having fun and they get flowers and snacks. I think you have a gross misunderstanding 
understanding of the U.S. education system at this point. <laughs> yeah. If anything, it's much, much worse than it was when we were kids. Jesus Christ. Well, I had a teacher, Mr. Thomas McCann, who let us listen to Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire over and over and over again until I learned about JFK, which was great. <laughs> um, also, so we're on to Bonnie and Clyde. It's interesting the way it has to be named Bonnie and Clyde yeah. as opposed to Clyde and Bonnie. Doesn't mark. Because Clyde and Bonnie just sounds like a Midwest Christian couple who own a Chick-fil-A. <laughs> And it's just like, thank God we're closed on Sunday so we can also teach Bible study. Like, Clyde and Bonnie just does not work. We're also going to learn now, these these are the type of things that allow these legends to grow. Is it sometimes it's really just about your name, your the, the package, the time period, and that's why Bonnie and Clyde, up until now, they stick in the imagination of Americans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there is something to that, we'll get here, but there is something to that freedom aspect that people love. Yeah. yeah. Well, Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow were Ooh. two Depression-era criminals from Texas who, over the course of two years, robbed innumerable small businesses and gas stations, stole dozens, if not hundreds, of cars, robbed a couple of banks, and were indirectly or directly responsible for the deaths of 13 men. Ooh. I never said massacres were cool. <laughs> Henry, we know... <laughs> <laughs> but they were kind of run in the neighborhood. It's kind right. of crazy. The more we re- research Bonnie and Clyde, they're so much fun because they were such, you know, they were such ridiculous characters. It was like bullets flying out of a big cloud of dirt yeah. fucking right. rolling through town. I mean, there's a reason why uh, Flat and Scruggs' Foggy Mountain Breakdown was chosen as the theme for the Bonnie and Clyde movie. Interesting. Just really, really fast banjo music and fiddle. And that's how they live their lives. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You think about the end of the devil's rejects that great rob zombie film the mm-hmm. shootout and stuff like that Ooh, yeah fuck yeah dude that's the best fucking midnight rider in that fucking sequence it still gets me a bone it's the best <laughs> Now, although Bonnie and Clyde are now probably the most remembered of all the notorious criminals of the 30s, partly because of the 1967 movie of the same name, they were arguably the worst at actually making crime pay. They what? were horrible at it. No. Yeah. If you go <laughs> by the opinions of their peers, such as John Dillinger, Bonnie and Clyde were amateur posers, messy kids who were only making life more difficult for the ones who actually knew what they were doing. So wait, was there like a company meeting where they were like Bonnie and <laughs> And Clyde, you haven't been performing this this quarter. Can you please do better the next? John Dillinger, look at him. He's aces. <laughs> As we go through these stories, you're going to see it's true. They were they were po- essentially again posing as these people they grew to admire, these true outlaws of the 1930s. Because John Dillinger, people like the Baker Boys, mm. these were guys that were going and they were pulling off crazy heists, making oh. crazy bank. When Bonnie and Clyde were little doing their little picks-offs of little little stores mm-hmm. and the, 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 the random people, they were only making like 10 to 50 bucks at a time. And kind of but what happened with them is that, the again, the freeze frame, the picture, which we'll then get into, the actual picture of Bonnie and Clyde pointing guns at each other with right. cigarettes hanging out in the mouths. It's just like, it's just too sexy. Right, well, absolutely. Thing, is that Bonnie and Clyde had one thing that criminals like Dillinger and Babyface Nelson and Pretty Boy Floyd didn't have. Mm-hmm. Bonnie and Clyde were fucking. Interesting. Now, would Babyface Nelson, did he really have the face of the baby from Happy Death Day to you? <laughs> <laughs> that would be very scary or happy death day. That's horrifying. Well, because Bonnie and Clyde were young, reasonably attractive, and were fucking, they got the romantic treatment. Because, I mean, you got to remember, I mean, this is 1931, 1932. I mean, uh, 
young couple on the road, illicit sex, unmarried. Like, that's some saucy shit. But, I mean, it's not like it was romantic. They were fucking using petroleum or something for lube. (laughs) I mean, I can't imagine it was, like, really romantic sex. No, they were two young bit-boop jazz boys that got out of the the little shitty neighborhood that they were in and exploded on the national scene. So people looked up to them. Okay. See, the story most people think about when Bonnie and Clyde are mentioned is one of two young lovers sticking it to the man and living life by their own rules. Right. And on the surface, that part of the story holds true. Okay. And to the people who were suffering through the Great Depression of the 30s, Bonnie and Clyde were heroes for just that reason. People felt so goddamn powerless back then that the idea of two people killing authority figures, i.e. cops, made them feel good. Interesting. They loved it. Add to that the myth that Bonnie and Clyde were actually competent bank robbers who were stealing from the very same people that were foreclosing on homes and farms left and right, and you got a recipe for celebrity. You got yourself a Robin Hood. But they were they weren't getting enough to share. Yeah. They weren't getting enough to buy things in the neighborhood. They weren't doing it the MC Hammer way where they would buy a house <laughs> made out of glass looking down on West Dallas. <laughs> Well, the deeper reality of the situation, however, was one of two young kids who felt they deserved more in this world than the poverty into which they were born. So they decided to take a shortcut to respect, and as a result, Mm. over a dozen innocent people died. Now, that's not to say that Bonnie and Clyde had easy lives. They didn't. As we'll soon get into, both of them grew up so poor that when the Great Depression came along in 1929, the day-to-day lives of their families were barely affected. That's the best part of having nothing to lose, is that nobody can take anything from you. Yeah, I mean, it is strange. The Great Depression hits, and they just have, like, welcome. Welcome to my world. (laughs) How how are you going to do it? And they probably did much better than the folks who had something and now lost everything. They're like, see, follow our lead. We know how to be poor. (laughs) It's because they were all being punished for their fake-ass money. That's the problem. They they didn't have fake money, but they didn't even have real money. And they didn't have anything. Mm -hmm. And they were just hauling junk. Yeah. (laughs) And there's plenty of junk. Of course. (laughs) But whatever sympathy we may have for Bonnie and Clyde ends the moment murder comes into the picture. Mm. The people who got killed were not the industrial bigwigs and politicians who were actually responsible for keeping people like Bonnie and Clyde living in the dirt. Mm. Much of the time, their victims were either shop owners just trying to survive or regular dudes trying to make a couple of extra bucks as small-town cops whose most dangerous duty was supposed to just be breaking up drunken fights. Right. So they roll into town, man. Again, feel the dust like Yosemite Sam. Mm-hmm. And so that's a pr- they're not hardened killers. Like, what you find out about Clyde Barrow is that he's not a fucking serial killer. He's a dude that just knows that he, he you know, will see moments of mercy. This is, It's an incredible story, the, the arc that Clyde and Bonnie go, the arc that Bonnie and Clyde go through. It's an incredible mm. story. But the, the you see a lot of the, the murders are accidental. And also just when you got a guy in the corner who, again, who's got nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to address another myth about at least Clyde right up top, okay. Clyde Barrow was neither impotent as he was portrayed by Warren Beatty, nor was he gay. Honestly, that is how incredible Warren Beatty is as an actor. He could pretend is- he's impotent. Because you know Warren Beatty back in the day, I mean, I'd give it up. I'd give it up him immediately. And, him and Faye Dunaway actually had to make an agreement to not fuck on the set. Oh, of yeah, that is like, he See, that's fucked the so real many story. women. He, and the only way for him to look cool was to pretend his dick didn't work. <laughs> 
Well, the only reason why they portrayed him as impotent is because the original script had Clyde Barrow as bisexual. Mm. And since that would be too controversial for 1967, impotence was somehow the compromise. Okay. I don't get why, but that's what it was. Studio execs for you. I also like... That at the time, being bisexual meant it was like, Bonnie's like, why don't you come to my room now? And he would like kind of look to the side and see another man like just sort of look from outside of a <laughs> tiny open door. like, And then he'd just kind of look at the ground and go, I'll see you in the morning, Bonnie. And then leave. And it's like, gay. Must gay be. sex. No what other explanation. What do you mean back then? You just described a scene from Bohemian Rhapsody. I, exactly. <laughs> Where Bohemian is. Rhapsody is a backwards-ass shitty movie. <laughs> That's what I've heard. Well, as far as the claims that Clyde Barrow was gay went, that seems to have come from a place of homophobia. I.e. the idea that if you really want to make someone evil, you make him gay on top mm. of everything else. I gotta say... I, as, a, as an advocate for the LGBTQ community, I miss scary gay. <laughs> I want gays to be scary again because that is like, you're going to mess. I want them all to be like the teacher from Nightmare on Elm Street 2, marching mm-hmm. on Washington, just being like, we're going to have our rights, by the way, or we will pummel you in every way possible. Yes, I am gay, but I am also a supervillain. <laughs> Well, the claim that Clyde was gay comes from the opposite side of romanticizing Bonnie and Clyde. Some authors like to paint Clyde as a full-on psychopath, Hmm. with some even claiming that Clyde was a child killer who preferred boys and never even slept with Bonnie. But those claims came long after the pair were killed. At the height of their popularity in the early 30s, it would have been suicide for a paper to buck the narrative of two young lovers on the run. Hmm. The truth, as usual, though, is somewhere in between. Although there is a fair amount of romance to the story, Bonnie and Clyde were mostly a couple of dumb young kids who knew full well the consequences of their actions, Mm. but just didn't give a fuck. But I will say, this is by far, of all the stories we've covered on Last Podcast and Left, the most romantic. Mm -hmm. This This is the story where the love actually was real. Bonnie and Clyde loved the fuck out of each other in a way that was probably kind of sick. They were like, uh, they were obsessed with each other. They were codependent on each other. Right. They needed each other, but that's why no matter, no one could fucking fuck separate them. It's, it's great. It's kind of, it's nice because you can kind of imagine yourself, you fucking like Kissel in a Ford Model T with mm-hmm. a Bud Light with a wig on, just going through <laughs> and just robbing ra- various people. True right. love. True love indeed. <laughs> but all it took for their celebrity status to come crashing down was one huge fuck up. And when that fuck up was paired with a misreported story, the tide of public opinion turned. Mm. And when it came to that type of celebrity, the turning of the tide meant certain death. (laughs) (laughs) But before we get into the story, let's acknowledge our main source today. Go Down Together by Jeff Gwynn, which is, just like Gwynn's The Road to Jonestown, it's absolutely fantastic and highly recommended. Okay. This is the same guy like that we fir- used as a big source for our Jonestown episodes. This guy, yeah, Jeff Quinn's Road to Go Down Together. Fucking read it. It's great. It's like an action movie. Yeah. He writes an incredibly real action movie that is their lives. It's it's uh, it's awesome. It's gripping. Okay. Yeah. And some people have taken umbrage with Gwen's telling of the story by saying it yeah, he made it a bit too much of an action movie. They okay. say that sure. he assumes a few things that he shouldn't, but we'll do our best to address those claims when they arise. All right. 
So, without further ado, let's get into the always sexy, always bloody, and sometimes very dumb story of Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow. Yay! Now, while neither Bonnie nor Clyde were born into anything even closely resembling money, out of the two, Clyde Chestnut Barrow (laughs) was by far the most poverty-stricken, having grown up in almost third-world conditions. Your middle name was named after the only food we had in the house. It was a chestnut, indeed. (laughs) That's why your other brother's name, Bud Broken Teeth Barrel. (laughs) Born on March 24th, 1910, Clyde was the fifth child of seven born to Henry and Cumie Barrow. You saying Cumie, then it's spelled Cummie. Well, it's, something's going on in that house with seven kids. It's pronounced Cumi. It is spelled Cummy. Yeah. How do you know? How do you know it's pronounced Cumi? Because that's in all the documentaries, they call her Cumi. I think it's just because they can't call him, her Cummy. <laughs> that's just not a. Uh, that's not. Uh, I promise that now I'm going to flip it the other way and just be like, I'm about to Cumi. <laughs> Don't do that. It sounds like you're coming while thinking of math. <laughs> Weird. Yeah. Weird, but accurate. Yeah. 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 So when Clyde was born, Henry, his father, was a sharecropper who toiled in the dirt fields of Teleco, Texas, near the town of Enos. Hmm. Now, I, are they just selling dirt in <laughs> Enos? Like, is that cotton. what a dirt farmer is, a sharecropper? Did he just pile dirt together? And he's like, say, I might. I might a dirt man. No. And then people come and pay it to pretend to be their father? <laughs> No, they're farming cotton. This is cotton land. These are all cotton farmers. Oh, okay. Actually, we all drove through Enos uh, during our first Texas tour when we were driving from uh, Austin to Dallas. I remember that. I remember looking out the window and saying, look at that beautiful town. It's so majestic and glorious. I love Enos. (laughs) You don't remember a damn thing. Do you remember Enos? Do you remember? To our loyal listeners out in Enos... We love you, and if you drive a PT Cruiser in Enos, you're number one. Sure. All right. We had a town, and we had a, a, a gated community in our neighborhood that was Ennis Town. Um, that they had a, the, across the street, and people used to paint a P in front of it. Of right. pretty course. often. You right. have to. Right. We have we have Canal Street here in uh, in New York, and the fact that every teenager hasn't marked off the C to make it Anal Street is <laughs> making me a little disappointed in the youth, quite honestly. Now, Cumi definitely played her part of the weather-beaten religious sharecropper's wife, living a life of struggle and penitence that was rooted in the belief that being poor was a sign that Jesus actually loved you more than those who were rich. It's like the opposite of the. Uh, it's like the opposite of the uh, prosperity gospel that we got going on now. Mm-hmm. That is a line that was sold to yeah. people for a long time, and the idea of keeping them poor. This yeah. is a part of the weird like class struggles of the church, where they, they would basically t- treat you, be like, don't worry, be happy. You don't need to strive for more. You don't right. have to, because God loves the fact that you never smile. You <laughs> right. literally never <laughs> smile. The pictures they have of Cummy and the kids, Cumi. where she... <laughs> okay, but they all look like they, they all look like what's his name? Um, they all look like Pigpen <laughs> from from Charlie from Charlie Brown, yeah. and they're all covered in dirt, and they don't even have the energy to frown. Aww. It's just a bunch of lines. It's all the emojis with the two dots for the eyes and the line for a face. Oh, they were working hard though, hoping to make yes. uh, hoping hoping to make it big one day, perhaps. I, I mean, most of them were just hoping to make it to the next meal. Wow. Like making it big for most people was not even an option. Mm. And as Gwen points out, Clyde was taught from a young age that poor people were godly and good, while people with money were by their very nature sinful 
people allied with the devil and inherently lesser than. Okay, interesting. Interesting flip and reversal. Yeah. Now, as I said, Clyde was only one of seven kids, and all the boys grew up with fun little nicknames. Clyde was known as Bud because Clyde was very friendly. Oh. His oldest brother, Elvin, was called Jack, although no one can remember why. <laughs> it's just a name. That's just another <laughs> name. It's another name. Clyde's younger brother was known as Flop because he had big ears. That's <laughs> cute. Cute kid. While Clyde's older brother, Ivan, who would be the biggest influence in Clyde's life, was known only as Buck. Oh, God, you don't want to meet Buck in a dark alley. <laughs> Buck oh. Barrow. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> hey, they call me Stumps because a bird ate my hand. <laughs> oh, I forgot we had an eighth child. <laughs> Now, it seems like Cumie did the best she could with the kids, or at least by the standards of the time, which meant a whole lot of whipping and a whole lot of Jesus. Mm. And when the boys were young, they really weren't all that bad. As far as we know, there was none of the early childhood signs of overtly violent criminal behavior. Hmm. I mean, they did grow up idolizing famous American outlaws like Jesse James and Billy the Kid, mm -hmm. but so did just about every other poor kid at the time. Right. Yeah, I loved the Empire growing up as a child. Yeah. I wanted to be, I liked the Empire. I liked Darth Vader. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. They dressed better. They had better amenities in their spacecraft. Yeah, Skywalker yeah. sucked. Well, this is very controversial Yo, territory. The only guy was <laughs> the only person who was cool was Chewbacca. Wow, <laughs> he was cool. Chewbacca was very cool. R.I.P. By the way. Yeah. R.I.P. Peter Mayhew. Yes. But the Barrow Boys being good all changed when Buck started stealing roosters. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> See, Buck wanted to get in a cockfight and to make a little money. And since his family had no money, he started stealing all of his moneymakers. Because hmm. you can't raise a fighting cock. You yeah. gotta steal a fighting cock. No, you can't go and just because what do you do? You get to spank a cock. You're gonna get this little <laughs> cock out of the, the rooster, and you're gonna give it spanks. You're gonna beat it. You're gonna call it names. No, how do you make it angry? No, the uh, the coach, the guy who coached all the uh, girls' sports at uh, my school, he raised fighting cocks. Used to go to Oklahoma every weekend, fight them. Are we not? This is not a euphemism for anything, right? I just want to be sure we're still talking about roosters. Yeah, we're talking about roosters. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Coach I, Arnold. Yeah, he used to take the. Yeah, he used to fight because it was still legal in Oklahoma. At so, the time. hello, I'm Coach Arnold. I raise fighting cocks. Yeah, he had a whole yeah. plot of land for it. It was still legal. Yeah. Wow. How do you make a mean cock without having a bad mommy? Can we stop <laughs> saying the word cock? <laughs> well. That was about the worst trouble the Barrow Boys could get into out in Teleco, stealing fighting cocks. But <laughs> <laughs> I guess we can't stop saying the word cocks. <laughs> but everything fell apart when World War I came to an end. Mm. See, when the war was raging, European farmers couldn't produce crops for obvious reasons. And because American farmers were the only game in town, prices for crops went through the roof during World War I. But as soon as the war was over and the Europeans started producing again, the bottom fell out of the market here in America and sharecroppers like Henry Barrow were put out on their ass. Oh. I don't pretend to understand a single goddamn thing about economics, right? <laughs> I, I really don't understand. I don't understand anything about like financial politics or any of this kind of shit. Or, but it is really interesting to see how Gwyn breaks down how essentially – these these wartime politics, us putting ourselves into World War One, <clears throat> how that ended up creating essentially the hole that the depression kind of would fall into. Mm. All of this like wide ranging, decades long bullshit that ended up turning up like, but mixed with then with the Dust Bowl happening in the United States of America, almost like destroying us and creating an entire true crime subculture mm. because of it. 
It's, you know, it's, very it's a lot of stuff in there. It's Absolutely. a lot to unpack. Oh, yeah. True man. crime and economics. It's a fascinating little, uh, it's, a, it's a fun little intertwining study there. So, with nothing left to do in the country, the Barrow family loaded up their wagon and headed to the rapidly growing city of Dallas in 1922, where industry was having the same sort of boom agriculture was having a few years before. Problem was, nobody wanted to employ people like Henry Barrow. Why not? See, the city fathers of Dallas had a vision for their city, wherein this smallish Texas town would one day be on par with cosmopolitan cities like San Francisco and Paris. Honestly, I'm going to say they beat San Francisco. When we were in (laughs) Dallas, we did not see one pile of human feces. Um, I know. It's because they all walk along all the highways. And they yeah, probably dude, just I don't, shoot them. They got poo-poo highways? <laughs> What's going I on? don't know if Dallas is better than San Francisco. It is not. I'm, They're I say both it, great. <laughs> I'm going to say it's not. I will say that Dallas is an interesting place because what you've talked about it, Marcus, and the way I've heard other people talk about it is it seems to be Dallas was uh, pretty highfalutin for itself and did believe that they wanted to create essentially a city of elites. And I actually don't know if like a lot has changed. Dallas is doing very well. We were just there. I love Dallas. I tell you, I like Dallas better now than I did when uh, I was in college. Like, some cool places have popped up in Dallas recently. Absolutely. Uh, Great honky-tonks. Yeah, but Dallas uh, was trying to be a banking city. Okay. I mean, they didn't want, they wanted to be as far removed from the cowboy culture as the, that the rest of Texas had. They wanted to move, remove themselves from as far away as they could possibly get. Mm-hmm. Okay. And younger people like Clyde's older siblings fit into that vision quite nicely. His older brother Jack became a mechanic, while his sister Nell became a hairdresser because the bankers who were planning to rule the city with an iron fist needed people to fix their cars and do their hair. Both of them fell right in line also and but the, what that also did though is that that took workforce away from the barrow farm and w- the people that needed to basically inherit this piece of land that henry barrow was working for a bunch of years he basically pooped out a bunch of fucking city kids yeah like right. when your father had you marcus all <laughs> of a sudden it's just like you have a city child that's in a country place uh-huh. that then can't do the farm work i'm I, it's like if i was born then Right. What am I going to do? I'm just going to get <laughs> beaten to death in a field. Well, it'll be funny, though. It'll be a great show. You do understand that Marcus's father didn't birth him like Arnold Schwarzenegger in Junior. <laughs> it, was his, it, it, it was his mother. Yes, it, it was. It was my, and they've been very supportive of my city boy ways. Uh, that, my, pretty that's much my entire it's life. Nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then you have people like Henry Barrow. He, along with thousands of other small-time farmers in Texas, had flocked to the cities after the crash. And it got even worse after a particularly bad boll weevil infestation Uh. paired with a bout of cotton root rot swept through East Texas. Yeah, and then there's gunk toe and and prairie worm. (laughs) Oh, oh man, you don't want to see how wide these prairie worms they can get, but they're very thin. (laughs) Boll weevils? Are a legitimate concern. They sound cute. They are not. Yeah. What are they? Locusts, pretty. They're like a. They're a kind of locust uh, that will completely destroy a cotton crop if it really get if the infestation gets real bad. Well, they, well, they shouldn't have named them something so musical because like the flying, <laughs> like the the flying bull weevils. It just sounds like a really fun old country western band that has a lot of uh, what do you call those things? Jugs, banjos, <laughs> jugs and banjos. Uh, technically, there was a song about bull weevils written by the presidency of the United States of America. Yeah. We were the cutest alternative band uh, of the 90s. Really? And I I did figure it out. The lump that was in her head, cancer. Huh. 
Yeah. Interesting. Live from your grave. My sister is the best gift giver I've ever met of any person. It's Jackie Zabrowski. She shops all year thinking about her family and friends and puts little things aside for their birthdays and Christmases. I have no idea how she does it. I don't know how she do it. But guess what? She always wins Mother's Day, but not this year. I'm coming back. Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? I'm taking the crown. All right, give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. I mean this. We have the Aura frame up in my home. We absolutely love it. I can put photos on it very, very easily through the app. It's fun to do, and the memories keep cycling, and I get emotional, and we filled it with pictures of Carmi and Wendy, and that is not sad. That is celebratory, so you should try it. It's honestly a really good product. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code LEFT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors. It's a waste. Don't waste hours on apps. Besides appetizers, that's the kind of apps I like. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Did you know that empanada is already Spanish? I didn't. Thanks, Babbel. Did you know that burrito is already Spanish? Wow. I just got to learn all the rest. And eventually, I'm going to be eating downtown Mexico. Thanks, Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash left. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash left, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash L-E-F-T. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Yeah, we do. Do you love saving money? Oh my God, you bet. Then Philo may be your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. That's amazing. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles. It's just a better way to watch TV. Get with it, people. Philo has an unlimited DVR for one year. Save all your favorite shows so you can watch on your own schedule. Philo allows for multiple profiles and multiple streams, meaning that your children or significant other can't ruin your queue. Never miss a minute of shows like, oh, RuPaul's Drag Race. You're going to watch it. You're going to love it. You're going to get involved with it. And it's an extravaganza. You're going to love it. With Philo, you can start watching in seconds for less money and less hassle. Try it yourself with your seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash left. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash L-E-F-T to get 50% off your first month. Now, the other Texas cities like Austin, San Antonio, and Houston understood that these refugees from Mm. the cotton crash were actual human beings. But the city fathers of Dallas said, fuck them, and shoved them all into a tent city called West Dallas, which came to be known alternately as either the bog or the devil's back porch. That's sweet. That's yeah, sweet. buddy. Is West Dallas now like a hipster neighborhood? I think so, yeah. 
I mean, yeah. I'm not real sure. I know West Dallas has never been nice, uh, but yeah, when I looked it up, it was like, there's new expanding businesses coming to West Dallas, like a yoga studio. Honestly, there better yeah. be a bar named the Devil's Back Porch. I would go there every um, day. We're actually a croissantery, so if you want any sort of other type of bread, we don't have it. We just have crunchy sweet bread that you can eat with chili and that's it this is a country chili croissantery mm. also i can't hear the word sweet breads anymore after you all tricked me into uh, into eating lamb testicles in yeah. oklahoma city you loved it i thought there were actual sweet i thought it was sweet bread i thought it was bread that was sweet not lamb Until you balls. found out what it was you loved it <sighs> Well, in West Dallas, amidst the open sewers, dirt streets, and innumerable tents, was where Clyde Barrow arrived with his family at the age of 12. And the Barrows didn't even have a tent. They slept under their wagon every night. It is fucking brutal sounding. It's just, yeah. it's just the way they live their lives is a way that I would I would die <laughs> so <laughs> fast. Oh, yeah. they, they, it's like if I drove my Prius to go live in a park, but then I just slept under my Prius all night. Yeah, it would be dangerous, <laughs> dangerous. And as far as food went, the only thing they ever had to eat was when the Salvation Army arrived with bologna on stale bread, <sighs> which the locals colorfully called West Dallas Round Steak. Fun nickname really does fix a lot of things. It really does. <laughs> West Dallas Round Steak sounds like a super fun sexual position or a great sandwich. <laughs> Yeah, it does sound like eating ass. Yeah. <laughs> Your round steak. As far as what Henry Barrow did for money, he was a junk man. Every day he'd hitch his horse to his wagon and leave his family sitting in the dirt while he crossed the Trinity River and scoured the nicer neighborhoods for scrap metal. Hmm. But little by little, Henry gathered enough junk to build his family a tiny little shack in West Dallas, and eventually the Barrows were one of the few families in the camp to have an actual roof over their heads. Good. So this guy was good. He was doing some good parenting. He, I don't know if the term working your ass off, like, I mean, literally, he had a mule. Yeah. And his mule was his car that he'd go and he'd take a pick of scrap metal. He'd go do that for 13 hours a day. He would come back to his family. He'd give them the beans that he could find. He then would then spend the next... Five hours building the house where they would live out of the stuff that technically he should be selling. So, naturally, in a place so devastatingly poor, some of the citizens mm -hmm. in West Dallas turned to crime to survive. Mm -hmm. For one, Buck Barrow thrived in the environment. As there were a hell of a lot of chickens to steal in oh, Dallas proper. Oh, oh, what a gold mine. Cocks plenty. <laughs> <laughs> and Clyde thought Buck was about the coolest motherfucker in the world. See, Clyde was never what you'd call a big man. By 15, Clyde was the biggest he'd ever be. Five foot five, about 125 pounds. Really? Just I like I like him. <laughs> really? Just like I like him. Yep, like a big thing of dog food with a hat on. <laughs> <laughs> Well, by the time Clyde was 16, he dropped out of school, but that wasn't too big of a deal because only about 40% of students in America at the time went past eighth grade. Mm -hmm. And really, it wouldn't have made a goddamn bit of difference in Clyde's life if he had gone all the way through school. See, in America back then, but in Dallas especially, the station in which you born was almost guaranteed to be where you died. Interesting. Now, admittedly, it's not that much different today, right. but in the 20s, if you were born poor you were guaranteed to stay poor. And Clyde Barrow was so poor that not even the fathers of West Dallas, a.k.a. The Bog, would allow their daughters to date him. 
Hmm. Yeah, dude, it was it is very, very interesting to see that without the means to change. Right. I mean, he he was fucked. They were all fucked. Anybody in West Dallas was just and essentially they were told this is the way it is mm-hmm. and you're going to like it. We're right. going to give you whatever fucking spare ass hard jobs that you can have unless you have a skill because the mm-hmm. rest of the family like his hairdresser sisters, they had a profitable skill and they leaned into it and they'd go and they realized like oh this is what this is what we're going to do profitable because of the retail area but if you come from no right. education you're literally a sharecropper son that is now a junk man son there is very little room yeah. for you to wiggle your way in a proper society and humble plug here Abe Lincoln's top hat we talk about some recent legislation where making it more difficult once again for uh, low-income people to move upwards upward mobility has always been talked about but never achieved in this country no and it is getting worse by the day absolutely here in and as far as Clyde's dreams went he spent all the free time he had going into downtown Dallas to window shop for fine suits nice guitars and all the things he'd buy and do if only he had a little bit of money he's like Wayne from Wayne's World looking at the Stratocaster <laughs> yes. that's the funny yes. thing is that uh, Clyde Barrow was actually an accomplished guitar player really? and a saxophonist he was like he was actually a really good musician okay cool they, they he there was a second where he was starting to do live music. It was like we might have seen a Clyde Barrow as a folk singer instead of as a a bank thief from bank right. robber, but it just d- didn't catch. Interesting. Yeah. And Clyde did work. I mean, his first job was at the Brown Cracker and Candy Company. Why are all of these, these all sound like disgusting acts men do with their farm hands? Give me a brown cracker. I don't want to give you a brown cracker, Wait sir. a second. Wait, if you give me about two hours, I can give you a brown cracker because I, I just did brown cracker with my cousin about 45 minutes ago. God. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, there at Brown Cracker and Candy Company, uh, Barrow worked for a dollar a day, which even in today's money, that's a dollar seventy-five an hour. So they just ah. paid him to take a dump on a conveyor belt <laughs> over and over and over again. Yeah. More beans. <laughs> we need more beans. <laughs> and as they said, there was no room whatsoever for advancement. The way Gwyn puts it, people from Dallas owned and ran the factories, while people from West Dallas work the factories Mm. and they were expected to work the factories forever and they were expected to be grateful for the opportunity right and unlike the cities on the east coast dallas had nothing even close to labor unions so people like clyde were working at least 60 hours a week Mm. the most clyde ever made was 30 cents an hour working for procter and gamble which in today's cash is still just four you make more than that in a maximum security prison. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, technically, it's the same amount of money that a bartender at a local Irish tavern would make. Think about that. Think about that. Honestly, that's what they make. But they especially get tips. Yeah, they, get, they, get tips. they get tips. Yeah, they get tips. But is that a guaranteed flow of income? No, that's yeah. an interesting little uh, economic argument we could have because <laughs> a lot of people don't believe in tips or believe it's merit-based. When well, Why should it be merit-based if it's a thing that then is expected of you to in order to make a living wage? I'm not going to side bubble off into this conversation. <laughs> Statistics show you make more money getting tips than if you get a minimum wage. They want the tips. Give them the money. Well, after Procter & Gamble, 
Clyde worked for the United Glass Company. Then he tried enlisting in the Navy. This guy, he really did make every effort, at least when he was younger, to go straight. He's 5'5", 120 or something. perfect for the Navy. No, he's not. Honestly, why not? That's how my dad got in. That is literally how my dad got in because he was tiny enough to go into the submarine. Exactly. You just got to fit. Then then it could. Well, there weren't submarines back then. I mean, Clyde, he he enlisted. He even got the letters USN tattooed on his arm in anticipation. He's like, I'm going all in on this. But ultimately... He was deemed too sickly to serve. Oh, yeah. His father no. used to suffer from a thing I believe they just called the shivers. And I think, <laughs> the, I think it was like epilepsy where he'd be like, fucked. And Clyde got a little touch of the shivers, which is bad when you're auditioning for the Navy. Do you uh-huh. audition for the Navy? I, yeah, you can call it an audition. Sure. Mm-hmm. I tell you what, I do really regret the SNL tattoo I got before <laughs> going in. <laughs> yeah, and that wasn't. Clyde's last ill-conceived tattoo either. Later that same year, he got the letters EBW tattooed right under USN. That was the initials of his girlfriend at the time, Eleanor B. Williams. That's going to lead to an argument down the road with whoever you inevitably marry. And when that went sour, Clyde moved on. And pretty soon, Anne got a spot right under EBW. And then finally, Grace came in at number four. What, is he a fucking makeout tree where he's just (laughs) carving the initials of everyone that he's kissed? What is happening? But strangely, Clyde never got Bonnie's name tattooed anywhere on his body. Really? I guess he'd learned his lesson by that I would hope so. Bonnie, I got something special for you. Now, seeming that you're you're my special lady, you're my number one, you're my number one in this whole criminal organization, I can show you right here. (coughs) I got a little BP on my taint. (laughs) You can see your other... <laughs> but at any rate, Clyde was starting to realize that he was never going to get the nice clothes and fast cars working at places like Brown Cracker. No. <laughs> For people like Clyde, the only real way to supplement your income was through crime. Mm-hmm. For the women of West Dallas, the most common crime was sex work. For men, the crime of choice was theft. Mm. And Clyde started off by stealing what else? You want to guess, Ben? Um, televisions. <laughs> um, uh, toasters. Um. There was one television and one toaster in the country at the time. They were both in the Rockefeller's house. Yeah, he stole. Um, okay, one last thing. Honestly, what would he steal? What would he steal? Uh, car engines. Chickens. 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 <laughs> chickens. Go, chickens. That's your best bang for your buck when you get to petty crime. Because, see, look at it this way. You either sell the chicken or you got a chicken dinner. If you said fuck the chicken, I'd be really upset. Okay, great. Well, pretty soon, though, Clyde got picked up for chicken theft, but was let go because there wasn't enough room to hold every West Dallas kid busted for stealing a chicken. Yeah, because why would you literally steal an alarm clock? You literally are stealing the thing that is made to wake people up in the morning. It's hard. It was hard living, man. It was hard to find a, a way in, buddy. I will say, I think that that's one of my favorite historical things I even read about this book, about how Texas at the time had so little room in jails that they just pardoned people. Right. And that's all they would do to get him out of the jail. Be like, nah, you're fine. Eh, stupid. <laughs> get out of here. Interesting. 
Uh, Clyde was free for about three weeks, but then the cops picked him up again. This time, Clyde and his brother Buck had upped their poultry game by stealing a whole truckload of turkeys right before Thanksgiving. <laughs> what a noisier crime. There's not a noisier crime that exists than just stealing an entire truck of turkeys. And I imagine at some point, understand they're being stolen. So right. it's them, because of the coach, they're like, ah, this is our truck now, see? Get out of here, see? And he's like, go, 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 no, I, I didn't see any of them, sir. I have no idea. I don't know what you're talking about, sir. No, no, no. No, that's that's our daughter that Becky. She's a yeah. They were caught almost immediately. I would think so. Yeah, but Buck took all the blame, like a good big brother, uh, and Clyde was set free. But the problem was, Clyde had now been picked up twice in almost as many weeks mm. for theft, which earned him a permanent spot on the Dallas Police Department shit list. Ah. So from then on, anytime there was a theft, Clyde was on the list for investigation as a suspect when the cops didn't have any leads, which meant that cops could detain Clyde at any time for, quote-unquote, suspicion. And most of the time, this happened while Clyde was at work. And as a result, Clyde kept losing jobs because the cops would come, they'd pick him up, right. they'd say, all right, we're taking you downtown on suspicion. They'd take him downtown, they would question him, and then they'd just fucking leave him there. What the hell did they do? On, did they put him into a lineup and then just have a bunch of turkeys stare at him and be like, <laughs> And be like, I'm sorry, Mr. Clyde. It looks like the, the turkeys have, have have fingered you this time. You can always tell who's guilty by when the turkeys scream. <laughs> but this is a very, uh, this is even common nowadays, of from course. what I've heard yeah, from absolutely. people that suffer in impoverished um, neighborhoods, especially if you have any sort of record, constant harassment by the police. Yep. It's constant keeping up of basically checking in on you. Yeah. And, you know. It's really hard to keep a job when a police officer takes you off your shift. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. A lot of similarities with current day America. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about here is it did not go away. Right. You know, absolutely. It's, it's the exact same way now as it was then. Absolutely. And also, the, I mean, hell, this country is also rapidly sliding towards a place where people like Bonnie and Clyde could be born again. Oh, my. If they <laughs> haven't already. <laughs> <laughs> my God. Well, as a result of the police harassment, Clyde kept losing jobs, and eventually he began to give up on honest work altogether. Mm. But luckily for him, there was a new, much more profitable fence on the market than chickens. Okay. Cars. Yes, finally yeah. something <laughs> worth stealing. Thank God. See, around 1912, starting systems in cars began to switch from the big, noisy cranks you'd have to use to start your Model T's and Model A's to electric starting systems. Ooh. Because of this, hot wiring became extremely easy and extremely common. Because you could open up the engine panel right next to the driver's door, hot wire it, hop in, and you're fucking gone in five seconds. That's pretty hot. Also, people just leave their keys in their car. Mm -hmm. It also, it, would, it was very, because, you know, people didn't truly understand that it would just take something that you out. And then we're going to see that the, the actual advancement in this technology is going to allow Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker to evade the police for two years. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Clyde Barrow was a natural. In fact, one could say that stealing cars and hauling ass were about the only two things Clyde Barrow was truly good at. It's fucking 
killer. If you do read about it in the book too, this is this is where I I I was like very excited to read it. He, I don't know if he invented drifting, but <laughs> oh. they would talk about how Clyde could do a turn on. He can do a ninety degree turn, and they would say like he could drive like a motherfucker. I believe it. I'm sure it's easy to drift. We got all the ladies just making the making the road nice and damn. I don't want to say that. Never mind. <laughs> I don't want to. I was. It doesn't matter. I was talking about how bussies would squirt. They I know bussy juice. That's the no, point of the joke. I, I realized it was too dirty for me. Although now this will probably be kept in anyway, so the whole thing doesn't matter. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, Clyde would steal a car in Dallas, take it to Oklahoma, and sell it for about a hundred bucks, which is about fifteen hundred dollars adjusted for today. Mm. Eventually, Clyde started hanging out with the seedier boys his age, specifically a kid named Frank Claus, who ironically was from Dallas proper. Oh. And Claus was what you called a second story man, which is just a weird 1920s way of naming a burglar who entered above the ground floor. I'm what you call a basement man. I try to find money in your butt. Well, anyways, I gotta go. I gotta go to jail for being a pedophile. Uh-huh. Okay. But with this second story man at his side, Clyde started escalating. And just as Clyde's appetite for crime hit an upswing, the stock market crashed and the Great Depression began on October 29th, 1929. Mm. At its absolute worst, for those of you who don't know the history, the Great Depression put a full quarter of the United States population out of work. 24.5% of people in the United States did not have a job. Damn. But although this was hitting those who already had money hard in the gut, Henry Barrow was doing fucking great. At because least he didn't have anything. Oh. <laughs> he didn't have any money in the bank. He didn't have a goddamn thing. It just shows, again, you just not fuck with it. Which is why I'm going to eventually turn all of my cash into precious gems uh. that I can carry around in a big bag or a suitcase that's handcuffed to my wrist. There's nothing I want to see more than Wizard Henry Zabrowski. It's going to, like, literally, you are, we actually had a chance to interview Dan Aykroyd on Side Stories, which is going to be out next week. And speaking with Dan Aykroyd was speaking to Henry in the future. And it really was, like, breaking my yes. brain to be like, wow, I know what my friendship is going to look like in 30 years with Henry. Mm. My life can work out. <laughs> <laughs> well, just a couple of months before Black Tuesday, Henry Barrow actually had a little bit of luck. A car spun out of control and killed his mule. Whoa, whoa that doesn't sound like luck. Well, after threatening well, a lawsuit, the owner of the car gave Henry $600, oh. which Henry used to buy a Model T, which exponentially increased his junk-gathering abilities. Oh, nice! And that... Right there is the American dream. <laughs> is that you get a settlement under the table from an accident, and then you can get even more junk to sell to oh slumlords. Dude, this is like, first of all, his his pops Henry is like Chris Farley in fucking Dirty Work, where he's like, the man with half a nose is king. <laughs> and he's also like the dude from, from uh, Office Space. Yeah. He gets hit by the car. It, it make all of his dreams come true, being uh, almost paralyzed. It's a junk. To conclusions, Matt. <laughs> yeah. But while Henry was making an honest living, Buck and Clyde were breaking the law all over North Texas, and it was about to catch up to him. Oh. In 1929, about a month after the stock market crash, the two brothers were joyriding in a stolen Ford with their buddy Sid. And deciding to take it a little further, the three of them broke into a house and got away with a bit of jewelry and a little bit of cash. Hmm. Then they figured they'd round out the night nicely by breaking into a place called Motor Mark Garage out in Denton cool. to see if they could crack the safe. 
The safe, though, proved uncrackable. So they hauled it out to their stolen Ford to see if they could crack it at home. But at the moment that these three idiots were putting an entire safe into the trunk of their car, a patrol cop came by and gave chase. But this is what I'm telling you, Claude. The next time, what we got to do, we got to steal the entire building. <laughs> and that's how we know. And then, best part, they police catch us, we go inside tell them we live there. <laughs> Come on. Was, that, was he with Israel Keys? Because I think you were doing the Israel Keys laugh there. Well, Clyde jumped in the driver's seat of the Ford and took off, but took a turn too fast and crashed the car. Oh. The three of them then took off on foot as the Denton police opened fire. Clyde and Sidney got away, but Buck got shot through both of his legs oh. and was God. arrested. <laughs> That's gotta suck Cause you know what it, How many times this happens Cause it's like Me and Jackie Are running away from A scene of a crime Jackie's like Oh my children too big. Jackie is going to kill you By the way <laughs> And then She gets shot In both legs Right And she falls in like Oh no But as a brother and sister You have to have Brothers in crime Have to have an understanding Where you can give like A tip of the hat Be like I'll see you soon. I'll get you out of jail. Don't worry. And then you leave. They had a separation policy where they knew that you can't stick around and help somebody else. The only way you can do is come back around and save them later on, which is a very important criminal skill. Mm -hmm. So your analogy involves you leaving your sister to be arrested and nearly die at the hands of the police. But I'll come back around. <laughs> but you come back around. Okay. Oh, yeah. I'll break her out of jail by pretending to be a sexy lady. And I will and I will, I will have sex with the jailer for a little while. Uh-huh. Just to convince him it's real. Good. You know I mean? If my butt doesn't turn him away <laughs> immediately, that means he would have had sex with me anyway. I wouldn't have needed to put the dress on, but, right, you know, right. I'd distract him. Yeah. Great, great idea. Great idea. Yeah. Well, the tragedy here is that just a few weeks before the arrest... Buck had met and fallen in love with his future wife, Blanche. They'd fallen so hard that they already had pet names for each other. Buck called Blanche Baby, and Blanche called Buck Daddy. Daddy. Oh, Oh, come on. Oh, Daddy. And absolutely, and they did the little, like, so this is the first Tumblr romance. Yeah. (laughs) Daddy and Baby. Mm -hmm. Daddy fucks Baby. I don't Baby loves Daddy. I'm pretty sure that happened to a lead singer of a band, and that man is currently incarcerated. I remember. But now, Daddy was facing a four-year prison sentence for robbery. And as far as how much was in the safe, the boys had risked their lives and freedom for little more than 30 bucks. Oh, my God. What are these? The Colonel's secret recipe. (laughs) This is incredible. (laughs) Now, Cumi and Henry hoped that this close call would put Clyde back on the straight and narrow. And for a while, it kind of did. I mean, he was still committing crimes, but he'd also started hanging out with his old West Dallas friends who were seen as better influences. Okay. Yeah, I don't do crime. I'm a yo-yo man. (laughs) I'll go and I play yo-yo outside of businesses until they pay me to stop. (laughs) But it was while Clyde was hanging out with one of those friends that, according to Jeff Gwynn, on January 5th, 1930, Clyde Barrow went to a house party at 105 Herbert Street and met Bonnie Parker. <gasps> and last my love has come along. <laughs> and the way they see each other, it's just, it is really magical. It is yeah. a moment in history that if you could freeze, imagining going to this party, because like, the way he kind of sets it up is that it was very much so like, 
Clyde was really fucked up. He didn't know what the hell to do with his life. His all of his buddies were like, "Come on, so we we could figure a way out of this." His brother's in jail. He he already run through run through a string of women, and then he just walks into this party and he sees Bonnie and fucking that's it. Yeah. Oh, From this- then on. The seas parted and they met in the middle, floating to each other, perhaps. Yeah. And that's just that's one version of how they met. There are, I like that sure, one. There are a few different versions of how they met, but that's the one we're going to go, go with. Let's go with that yeah. one. I like that one. It's cute. Live from your grave. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Finding work-life balance can be tough, but Squarespace gives you the tools to reach your goals and have time to celebrate. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. With the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint, you can select from curated layout and styling options to create a personalized website optimized for every device. Get your website discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools. Plus, make checkout easy for customers with easy-to-use payment tools. And with Squarespace AI, you can explain what your site is about, choose your tone, enter what you need, and get auto-generated text and that helps you save time i know i'm sitting on about two literal wheelbarrows filled with horse picks now part of the issue has been is a lot of these pictures are getting stopped at customs because some of them do depict various world leaders in horse-like circumstances that seems to be pinging a lot of these custom agents accounts now so what i've done to do is like so while i'm trying to work on hand smuggling these horse picks over various country borders. I then also have time because Squarespace is doing all the other ad work for me to go and work on my killdozer at home. So thank you, Squarespace, for allowing me to diversify in the best way possible for this country. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial when you're ready to launch. Go to squarespace.com slash left to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It says here I have to talk about something I need to get off my chest, and I guess I can share it here. I I eat mayonnaise for fun. It's a hobby of mine, and it's an addiction. It's a daily weight on my life. How much I need whipped egg whites and oil crammed into my veins. As soon as I wake up, and a lot of people carry around a lot of different stressors, big and small. Some people are presidents. Some people are soldiers. Some people have to eat mayonnaise, especially with hard-boiled eggs, which is what I eat for lunch. But I guess I should share that in therapy. Because therapy is a safe place to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And what I do is I just add eggs if I have mayonnaise left over. I just continue to add the eggs. But if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I hope they can help me. My God. I hope they can help me. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash LastPod today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash LastPod. Hi. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. 
Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. That's one of my favorite things about it. Fast-growing trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. Now, personally, I'm in the middle of re-landscaping my yard. I like to do it myself because I called up a landscaper to see how much it costs, and it was absolutely insane. Plus, I love dirt. I love getting my hands in the dirt, and I love planting things myself. And fast-growing trees has given me some wonderful plants that I can use. Like, I got this uh, Texas sage. It's purple. I've dug up a whole bunch of horrible bushes and shrubs up in front of my window and in front of my house and put some purple Texas sage up there, and it's going to thrive, and it's going to look real good. And I don't even have to go to a nursery to buy it. It came to my house. Now, this spring, they have the best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code LEFT at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code LEFT at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code LEFT. Offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Now, although Bonnie Parker wasn't as poor as Clyde Barrow, her family was still not well-to-do by any stretch of the imagination. Her father, Charlie Parker, died when Bonnie was four, and her mother moved the remaining family to Cement City. Now, Cement City was a kind of sister city to the bog that was West Dallas. While the people of West Dallas just choked on dirt and mud, people in Cement City at least had jobs while they choked on dirt and mud. Well, why didn't they bring Cement City over to Bog City, put the cement on the bog, and then you can have a whole city (laughs) that maybe make a nice little ravine with the bog Mm, water that's clean? No, Mm. no, I'm sorry. We already named it. (laughs) So, no. And it was in Cement City that Emma Parker got a job as a factory seamstress. But that didn't stop her from raising her kids to think that they were, in fact, better than everyone in Dallas. Hmm. Although she never really told them why they were better. Well, I actually think it's kind of refreshing and it was really nice. Emma Parker was constantly telling them, being like, you're better than any of your circumstances. And that's kind of the the concept of what uh, supposed to be good about fucking America. Right. This idea you're supposed to be able to go out there and make something of yourself. Never mind the crushing class war that you are losing. Yeah, but you you can still you can make your way through. Mm -hmm. It's uh, you got to navigate. You got to be a a, a navigator. And sometimes you just don't make it. You got to get lucky, too. Well, I mean, she did go a little bit far. I mean, it was, uh, sure. it was, she, it was more like you are superior to these other people. You're mm. superior to people in West Dallas. You're superior to the people that are above you. You're better than everyone else. You are special. You have your own little destiny to, to fulfill. Right. And you can do pretty much tell her you can do whatever the fuck you want. Never mind the consequences. She's like what Mama June did with uh, <laughs> with uh, what's the with name? Honey Boo Boo. Honey Boo Boo. Yeah. yeah, and Honey yeah. Boo Boo is going to space. Look at that. That's incredible. That they're strapping her to that rocket. Yeah, they're gonna like the dog they did in Russia. What they, they they tested? Yeah, they they're gonna test new private space shuttles with mm. Honey Boo Boo, and they're gonna open up her eyes so they could just so she could watch the whole thing and then put tubes in her so they could see how her blood reacts in uh-huh. space. <laughs> Man, I believed you for one second, and I really, really feel gullible right now. Well, as far as Bonnie as a little girl went, she was, to say the least, a precocious child who once shocked a crowd of churchgoers by singing... 
this song that I'm about to play, and this song is apparently what passed as a comedy tune in 1914. He's a devil. He's a devil. He's a devil in his own hometown. On the level, on the level, he's as funny as a clown. That's He's a Devil in His Own Hometown by Billy Murray. I honestly would listen to that today. I don't think we needed to make any music after 1940. <laughs> I, it's great. Are you going to do that as your your uh, mother-son dance at your wedding, <laughs> Marcus? <laughs> well, Bonnie also like. Do you have a song picked out for your mother-son dance yet? No, not yet. Okay. It's not going to be God Only Knows, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> that was yeah. the one that Holden had with his mother. We talked about that in our live show, and we can't wait to see everyone in Australia. That's right. We're, yeah, we're going to be in Australia. Very quick plug. Remember, way. we're going to be there a week after next. Sydney, Perth, Adelaide, Melbourne, all kinds of places. Brisbane. 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 Yeah, go to lastpodcastontheleft.com to get tickets. And we'll see y'all there. All right. Did you get the plug, Manager Ken? Did you (laughs) do it okay, Manager Ken? (laughs) Well, Bonnie also liked to set fires because she said the colors were pretty. I'm in love with her. (laughs) There are so many of us. I want to, there's listeners, like, honestly, you've already ruined your life. For a person like this, once. <laughs> yeah, a little Drew Barrymore-like in Firestarters, mm-hmm. a little creepy, perhaps. Mm-hmm. She also had a filthy mouth from a young age, which she picked up from her uncle. They said she never got rid of it. Bonnie had the filthiest mouth in town. That's cool. But Bonnie was never punished for anything, just because she was so damn cute. Oh. That's, yeah. how, that's how you always get away with it. It's like Wendy. Yeah. <laughs> Wendy, you go, and she'll take food off the plate, and you're like, oh, Wendy, I'm mad at you. That was food for the father, but no, you're cute. <laughs> Yep, what can you do? Yeah, Puffin drew blood on me yesterday, bit in my hand, but what can you do? Yeah, that's no. right. <laughs> Put him to sleep. No, wait. oh, Henry, don't even joke about it. That, that's horrible. Well, Bonnie got into her grandfather's wine stash and drank until she passed out, got into fist wow. fights with both boys and girls, and generally did whatever the hell she wanted to from the time she woke up until the time she went to sleep. Wow. But perhaps Bonnie's biggest influence was the picture shows. From the time she was old enough to go, Bonnie dreamed of a glamorous life, one where she'd sing on Broadway, she'd act in Hollywood movies, and publish books after book of poetry. Oh, cool. But Bonnie was never going to get out of Cement City. God damn it. And nah, they should have made it less out of cement. <laughs> cement? Cement. Cement. Yeah. And deep down, she knew it. You know, she knew she wasn't going to get out. I mean, she was smart, uh, I guess. I mean, she, like, won spelling bees. Yeah. Uh, but, sure. But, you know, there were, like, that's how Jeff Gwynn puts it. There were no fucking talent scouts in Cement City. And Bonnie was never going to make it to New York or L.A. No. where she'd actually get noticed. Oh. No, because she'd need collateral. Yeah. need money to go and... and invest into yourself as a business and that's what's kind of what he she was saying was that being like if maybe maybe if she had made it to new york or la she might have gotten in front of somebody simply just because of her drive but it was very difficult Mm -hmm. i would assume the only talent agent had the first black couch in uh in cement city and he's like (laughs) a a brand new couch couch. yeah (laughs) look at it's leather it's got deep seats and the best part about it is i could put my new motor camera right across from it Mm. (laughs) 
Well, by 15, Bonnie had married a petty thief named Roy Thornton and got a tattoo inside her right thigh with two hearts connected by arrows labeled Bonnie and Roy. This is another thing they can bond over, her and Clyde. Yeah, Yeah. and they probably did. Yeah, probably. They they probably definitely laughed about it. It It's kind of like that Kelsey Grammer chastity tattoo that he got to keep (laughs) from cheating on his wife. I really want to get one that's just in the top of, like, right near the top by my balls that just says, are you my mommy? (laughs) Oh, God, what is wrong with you today? Well, naturally, Bonnie's marriage to Roy Thornton was a total bust. Mm. Within a year, Roy was disappearing for days at a time and was refusing to tell Bonnie where he was going, although Bonnie heard a rumor that he was shacking up with Reba Griffin over in West Dallas. <sighs> oh, which, man. Which, which boots have your bed been under a bed, but whatever that <laughs> word is. Yeah, whose yeah, boots have honestly, your bed been under? I've never gotten that sentence right. As <laughs> Um, has any Reba ever gotten a man, honestly? I don't think so. <laughs> well, eventually, Roy just vanished altogether, and Bonnie was left to fend for herself. Now, she got a job waitressing at Hargraves Cafe in Dallas, making about 45 bucks a week plus tips in today's money. Now, it's Jeff Gwynn's assumption that Bonnie might have been moonlighting as a sex worker from time to time because she was always dressed much better than her work afforded, and Bonnie was also infertile, which for her. made her a prime candidate for sex work. Okay, good for her. Get uh, that money. But it could be that the clothes were either bought by potential suitors or were simply stolen. Mm. But when you read some of Bonnie's later poetry, specifically a poem called The Prostitute's Convention... Bonnie had quite a wealth of knowledge concerning the Dallas streetwalker scene. Okay. But we'll see a couple of things. There's a couple of things in there that I would put other little contingencies on is that sex work, quote unquote sex work, there's a lot of gray areas where you could just be given gifts by a dude you are dating. Like that is like a thing. Whether or not you call that sex work or dating, I don't know. But also she liked to put on the facade of these things. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, she likes to learn the lingo and the talk of these. She had a attraction. She had an right. attraction just like Clyde did to a criminal life immediately to see to your side because it was exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fake it till you make it though. Yeah. And she could have picked up all that knowledge and lingo from regulars at her waitressing job because even though she could be a bit of a pain in the ass at times, Bonnie was extremely well liked mm. and people opened up to her. Like even when uh, people were kidnapped by Bonnie and Clyde later on, like that when they let him go, they'd be like, that Bonnie's a peach. That's hilarious. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> but either it's, way, it's always very strange when you, when the person who's been kidnapped is like, call me, call me. Don't forget <laughs> yeah, to call. Yeah, exactly. You get to your next <laughs> robbery. Well, yeah, it was Joey like, Diaz. They did that. He did that. He kidnapped somebody, and the dude called him later and says, "I think you're funny." Bullshit. <laughs> it's like it's ridiculous. <laughs> Well, it was like that scene in uh, the Bonnie and Clyde movie when they kidnap uh, Gene Wilder and uh, his girlfriend. Like, which you know, you know, that's Gene Wilder's very first role. I did not know yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but it was ki- it was kind of, like that wasn't that much of an exaggeration. Like, some people had a fucking great time when they got kidnapped by Bonnie and Clyde. That's hilarious. others had an absolutely fucking awful time. It was not all sunshine and lollipops throughout that. Of course. But either way, when Bonnie and Clyde met at that house party in 1930, it said that the attraction was immediate and mutual. See, Clyde's big thing was control, and Mm. Bonnie liked a man who acted like he was in charge, just like all the men in the picture shows did. What is it with people of a certain height? If I only (laughs) had someone to ask, maybe a really good friend to ask about the control when it comes to people of 
different sizes. Because uh, the best part is that tall people can't see what you're doing. <laughs> and so they don't really know. You live your life uh, in an innocent cloud uh-huh. walking above while people like me have to do little machinations to make sure the bigs are safe. And well taken care of. Oh, thank you. That's very nice. (laughs) Well, furthermore, even though everything Clyde had was stolen or bought with stolen goods, Bonnie was still impressed by the nice clothes and the fancy car that Clyde had taken to the party. Okay. And Clyde liked that Bonnie was cute and clingy. Because although Bonnie and Clyde's attractiveness could, I think you could describe them as plain whites. Like yeah, Bonnie, but this is before makeup and ever. They're they're not ugly. They're no, not they're ugly. Not, no, no, they're just they're plain. They're plain whites. Yeah. Bonnie was obsessed with makeup. She would always would do herself up to the nines. Even as we go, well, as we cover later, when they were on the run, they were always like clean clothes, right? Very like hair done, makeup done. She was very much about she was about appearances because it was fun. Again, it was anything that took them out of the day to day reality mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. they were dealing with. Anything to elevate themselves, right? Yeah. Okay. But still, Bonnie was cute enough that having a girl like that constantly grabbing his arm boosted Clyde's self confidence. Absolutely. Oh yeah. And it didn't hurt that Bonnie was not quite five feet tall, which complemented the five foot five Clyde. Quite nicely. Perfect. See, he'd feel a lot stronger if he dated a five foot ten woman. I don't because think then you, it's it's strength. That shows strength and power. I don't think that Clyde needs to have any more feeling stronger. I think he felt <laughs> just strong enough. But the one thing that Bonnie and Clyde shared that bound them together permanently was their dogged determination to reject the life that they'd both been born into. Mm. They were gonna get out and they were gonna get out together. God, that's beautiful. Oh my God, no, I'm just thinking about Tracy Chapman's fast car. (laughs) (laughs) But just a month after they met, Clyde was arrested at Bonnie's house for attempted robbery. The cops tracked him down. And that was attempted robbery among about seven or eight other charges. The cops had just been investigating Clyde and just like tacking him on and tacking on and tacking on. And he was guilty. He'd done all this shit. Yeah, now are we talking turkeys again? We're talking cars. We're talking cars. Okay, Mm -hmm. great. Yeah, and he did it in multiple counties, and he did it in multiple states, and they decided to just come for him, and he was meeting Emma Parker that day. He he went to go, because Bonnie liked him so much that she wanted him to meet Mom, and so she brought him over, and they're hanging out, and he's just like, I'll tell you what, Mrs. Parker, I'm going to take good care of you, girl. It's going to be absolutely wonderful and fantastic. And, but she was just like, why are you in a suit? You obviously can't afford this shit. You have like a shiny brand new car that you cannot afford. I know for a fact. And then the cops show up. That's a rough. Yeah. That's a rough day. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And Bonnie was absolutely devastated and wrote this in her journal after visiting Clyde in jail. Quote, I was so blue and mad and discouraged, I just had to cry. I had Maybelline on my eyes and began to stream down my face, and I had to stop on Lamar Street. I laid my head down on the steering wheel and sure did boo-hoo. Man, now that would all be summed up in a meme. <laughs> they, were, they were so much more articulate. People were had to be more articulate back then. Do you think sure did boo-hoo is... Articulate? I do. I think there's something very artistic about sure did boohoo because I understand <laughs> that she was crying very hard and she's like boohoo. When you say it in an antiquated, like old timey way, it is cute. But if she went like oh, four did boohoo, <laughs> then you know it's it's simple. She's a simple. Oh, yeah. woman. She was not I mean, a simple woman. They're very no, complex. No, very I'd, complex. I'd imagine she had a, a very nice Texas accent. I'm sure. Yeah. Just I laid my head down on the steering wheel and sure did boohoo. She sure she boohoo, guys. <laughs> Are you not feeling the pain? I'm feeling the pain. 
Well, Clyde beat the first rap in Denton, but was immediately hauled off to Waco to face seven other charges ranging from car theft to possession of stolen goods, all while using pseudonyms like Elvin Williams, Eldon Williams, Jack Hale, and Roy Bailey. Cool. Those are good fake names. Yeah. Yeah. Roy Bailey's a great fake name. Great fake name. And so, for these crimes, Clyde was given seven concurrent two-year terms on March 5th, 1930, and earned a spot on the infamous one-way wagon from Waco to Huntsville State Penitentiary. That right there is a micro-episode that we'll do one day. The guy that ran the one-way the one-way wagon, that guy is such a, that's a fucking character. Yeah. I do, so technically they just gave him two years, though. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But just a few days later, Buck who was still serving his four-year term, had escaped from Huntsville <gasps> while serving as a trustee in the prison's kitchen. He and another dude just jumped in a guard's car when no one was looking and drove back to Dallas. Oh, I was That's hoping awesome. he would have escaped in the mashed potatoes. <laughs> That's the biggest <laughs> pot of mashed potatoes that's ever come out of this kitchen. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny, right? <laughs> Wait a second. That mashed potato save me an answer. <laughs> And when Buck showed back up at his parents' house, still wearing his prison overalls, his father just shook his head and said, That's Buck! Honestly, that means, okay, <laughs> what about Barb? I mean, that is a what television show. Barb? Let's get it done. Well, that was kind of the Barrow family's attitude towards all their kids. It was like, well, that's just Buck. Or like, well, that's just Clyde. That's just who they are. That's just, can't do anything about it. It's just, you know, that's just him. What well, are you going to do, snitch on your own kids? These are honestly the best parents we've covered so far, right? Well, what's his puts? Henry Barrow, I think he put it really quickly. He's like, a worker man ain't got time to sit his kids. Mm-hmm. The way that they talked about it is that they just straight up, like, they were essentially equals at the age of 10. They yeah. were there working. They were essentially employees of the farm, and then the rest of them mm-hmm. went to go b- make money someplace else and try to bring whatever they could back. Right. Well, meanwhile, Clyde Barrow was planning an escape of his own. See, Clyde had no intention of going to Huntsville. By reputation and design, Huntsville was, plainly put, hell on earth. So, before the wagon came to cart him away, Clyde cooked up a plan with Bonnie. Now, even though the two of them had only been dating a month when Clyde got arrested, Bonnie had still been visiting Clyde almost daily in both Denton and Waco. So one day, while Bonnie was making a regular visit, Clyde whispered the details of his plan. See, the whole thing had been cooked up with a fellow prisoner named William Turner. Mm. Turner was in the cell next to Clyde's, and Turner had hidden a revolver in his parents' house in East Waco. Oh, oh they would have loved to know. They would have loved it. One extra gun yeah. in order to stir the soup with it, to make eggs with it. Totally. I'm really happy you didn't say the extra pl- the, the plan was, hey... Why don't you, Bonnie, open your vagina? And let me try to spread us again. Listen, now, nah, listen, now. Nah. I gotta go away for a long time, okay? Now, listen. Oh, I just gotta do one thing for me. I need you to show me that butthole. <laughs> just, just, just once. Just once so I can see, so I can remember. Now, wink it. Wink it. God, Bonnie, I love you. Oh, love is real. Well, Clyde and Turner figured the only way to get that revolver into the jail was to have Bonnie smuggle it in. Uh Uh-oh. So Clyde drew Bonnie a map of where in the house the gun was hidden and asked her to go get it and come back that same day. See, this had to be a split-second decision for Bonnie. 
The wagon to Huntsville could come at any moment, and once Clyde was on that wagon, Bonnie couldn't do anything to help. The plan was for Clyde and Turner to use the gun to escape, then Clyde would lay low for a while and eventually come back for Bonnie. And really, Bonnie could have turned him down. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she could have headed back to Cement City, got herself a job, found herself another man, and lived a normal, if somewhat boring, life. Yeah, that's not a great alternative, it's, honestly. No, I, mean, I get it. It's not, man. Go ahead you and adventure. literally just got the invitation to criminal lifestyle. Like, this is it. Right. You want in, Bonnie? And think about how much he trusted Bonnie, just in this moment of time. I mean, he's stupid. Right. But it, he also, it was just like, he right people, right time, mm-hmm. scissoring together. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's it's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's like Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory with a golden ticket in the chocolate, chocolate bar. But in this case, it's a gun. <laughs> Inside of an Easter bunny or something. I don't know how it works. Well, Bonnie accepted because this type of action was exactly what Bonnie had been craving. With a daring rescue attempt like this, Bonnie would be on par with the women she saw each week at the picture show. And what better way to show her loyalty to her man than to help him bust out of prison? Interesting. I always think about that time that I was was working at Hollywood Video. (laughs) And I was sitting there just just polishing... I was polishing the videos. Really, I forgot what I used to do for. I forgot we. I even what my job was. Uh Uh, It wasn't a lot of a job, but the entire uh, the Seventy Sixers came in. Mm -hmm. Really, the the Philadelphia team, the The Philadelphia Seventy Sixers. Philadelphia Seventy Sixers. They were in town playing the Orlando Magic, and they came in, and they said. Uh, we love the way you're polishing them videotapes. And I'll be like, huh, tis my job, sir. <laughs> really? And they said, want to come with us to help shine these basketballs? And I said, no. <laughs> but I, I think about that decision all the time and about how what my life would have been like if mm-hmm. I just went with them shining them balls. Right. Mm-hmm. Again, just an extension of the idea that took place at the end of Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> when they yes, were asked yes. if they wanted yes. to go <laughs> be yes. the massage boys for the Hawaiian Tropic Girls. Is this an extension of uh, your decision to turn down the opportunity to play a blues brother at Universal Studios Florida? That is a real opportunity that I did say no to, and it did end up better in the end, But because yes. I would just be in Orlando probably right now. I yes. would probably be, I, I would be one of those, uh, what is it, the despicable me? Oh, you'd be, you'd, you'd be I'd a, be a minion. minion. Oh, yeah, be, I'd be a minion. Honestly, I would, I would pay money to have an alternative universe just to see you get knocked over by a fat seven-year-old. Just be like, I don't like minions. And just see you with your little feet be like, no, I should have gone to college. So, Mommy, but, mommy, why does that minion smell like whiskey? Because <laughs> I'm depressed. What was that? So Bonnie agreed. It took a while to find the gun. But she eventually managed it. The only problem was how she was going to get it back into the jail. The purse, too obvious. Mm-hmm. They're going to check the purse. Yep. And the gun was too big for her boot. Because remember, she's five foot tall. All right. Are we getting to something here? <laughs> uh, uh. <laughs> no, no, no. She was small. She couldn't put it in her pussy. Oh, okay. If it's, no, no, if it's too that. big for her boot, it's going to be too big for her vagina. I don't yeah. know what. Plus, that's going to gum up the gun. I, oh my God! <laughs> it's you not gonna gum up kissel. the gun. It's totally gonna gum up the gun. <laughs> okay, continue on. With the story. 
<laughs> so Bonnie decided the best course of action was to buckle an extra belt under her dress to hold the gun. Ah, yes. Because she'd never been through a full body search on any of her previous visits. And Bonnie, well, she came in and they fucking loved her. Yeah. She charmed the entire staff. She charmed the officers. They were letting her like go back until the, they were giving her extra visiting hours. She was using the private bathroom. Mm -hmm. Huh, okay. And Bonnie was absolutely correct in her assumption. She went through security again with a smile, unbuckled the gun from her belt as soon as she and Clyde were alone, and handed it to her beau. Ooh, love is in the air. Yeah, it is. It's real. So while Bonnie was waiting for word from Clyde back at her cousin's house, he, William Turner, and a third prisoner named Amory Abernathy put the plan into place. Why is there always a third guy who jumps on? Yeah. Why in prison escapes? There's always in prison escapes. It starts with the two guys of planning, and there's always some guy that was, it's just always just like, I sucked a cop's dick. I didn't know he was undercover, and I also don't know why he let me suck his dick. <laughs> <laughs> well, for the ruse, they'd chosen the old sick prisoner routine. Oh, that's great. Classic routine. Yeah. And Turner called out to the guard, a man named Hughes Jones, mm. and told him that he was nauseous and needed a little milk to settle his stomach. Oh, yeah, nothing mm -hmm. settles his stomach like 1930s milk. <laughs> mm -hmm. A whole Nothing like a whole mengala milk to just make you feel better. Oh, yeah. And since getting milk was easier than mopping up vomit, Hughes went and got the milk. Okay. But when Hughes opened the cell door to hand Turner the milk, Abernathy pulled out the gun and ordered the guard into the cell. So you guys aren't going to be drinking the milk then? <laughs> Is that right? Oh, uh, joke's on you, fella. Glug, 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 glug. Oh, I'm lactose <laughs> I guess I'll clean up the vomit then anyway. Well, within minutes, the three prisoners were out on the streets of Waco. Uh, they briefly exchanged gunfire with the guard while they were running down the street. But pretty soon, Clyde had hotwired a car. Smartly, they abandoned the first car for a better one just a little bit outside of town. This is fucking GTA. This is Grand Theft <laughs> yeah, Auto dude. before it even existed. And the funny thing is that like a lot of these shootouts, it's you remember that scene in Trailer Park Boys where they're shooting at each other and one of them accidentally <laughs> gets hit and they're like, hold on a second, one of us like, one of them got hit. We gotta stop for yeah, a second. Yeah. That's what all yeah. of these feel like because Clyde was always shooting over their heads and the other guys are shooting over his head. They're not they're just it's like a game. It's total fucking chaos. Right. That, that is a that is a part of kind of the the energy of this whole story is that every single the, the it shows that shootouts aren't what we see in the movies. I mean, obviously not. Or these kind of organized things. It's these very haphazard. Uh, just people pulling out guns and just shooting them in the general direction right. of each other. There's like people running around, like there's literally citizens in the middle of the fight. It's it's uh, so much, uh, I don't know, I love the, it's not subtlety, it's something about the idea that like it's not two factions getting in a line and getting cover and, right. and firing on each other. It's a whole tornado of activity. And mm -hmm. if you want to watch a live shooting, feel free to turn on any television news channel on any random Friday <laughs> and there's yeah. a good chance they'll be covered it right there for you trailer park boys by the way shout out instagram has reunited my love reinvigorated my love for them and if anyone knows the trailer park boys have them reach out to us we'd love to talk to them yeah we'd love to talk I to love them. them yeah they're of the course. best Live from your grave. Live from your grave. well the second car that clyde and his two companions stole 
wasn't reported stolen until the next morning, which gave the escapees a 12-hour head start. Mm. They switched cars in Lampasas, Goldthwaite, and Brownwood as they headed west, never stopping for a moment. And as far as Bonnie went, she didn't hear anything about the boys until she read a headline in the Waco Times-Herald a few days later that said, Trio Leaves Trail of Stolen Cars. Oh, dude, that's fucking awesome. And there was much editorializing to be done in said article. Oh, yeah. It read, quote, Schoolboy Barrel, Willie Turner, and Emery Abernathy are at large this morning. But they'll be back. They haven't the brains to stay free. It's the Dumble in them that brings them back. Not Dumble, Dumbbell. (laughs) I like Dumble better. I'm I'm officially calling people Dumbles from now on. I think that's that's actually better. Well, thankfully, though, there was no mention of Bonnie whatsoever. The cops hadn't even thought that maybe it was Bonnie that smuggled in the gun to the boys, even though that was the only logical explanation. Hmm. But just to be safe, Bonnie hitchhiked back to Dallas instead of taking the bus or train, lest the laws, as they all called the cops, be on the lookout for Clyde's new accomplice. Eventually, Clyde did get a telegram to Bonnie about five days after the breakout. The boys had made it as far as southwest Ohio. But since the boys were, after all, just boys, their first attempt at crime on the outside resulted in their arrest. Hmm. The ad hoc gang broke into a dry cleaners and a railroad depot all in the same night and took in about 60 bucks. Now, they got away with it that night, but they'd been pretty conspicuous in casing the depot earlier that day, so the agent had written down their plate number. Mm. So y'all got money? <laughs> I'm just asking, it's a, ask it, ask it. Can I ask another more specific question? Where is the money, uh-huh. and how much is it? Uh, sir, are you planning on coming back here later and robbing up here this railroad store? No. Ha <laughs> 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 Well, as such, when the boys drove past the same railway depot on their way out of town the next day, the cops, who were there investigating the bur- burglary, <laughs> immediately recognized the car and gave chase. Ah. And after a pursuit that involved more than a few gunshots and two separate car chases, all three men were arrested. The subsequent report in the Waco Times-Herald read, Baby Thugs Captured. And baby the- thugs? <laughs> why, why did they make it so cute? <laughs> because if they are baby thugs... That's like super funny. Like, remember what was it? Bobo? No, what's the uh, Bebo's world? Bobo? Bobo's world? Uh, Bobby's world? Baby's kids? Baby's kids? <laughs> Baby's kids? Are you talking about the Tone Loke baby? Yeah. <laughs> well, the accompanying editorial made sure to gloat about how the writer's previous estimation of the criminals as baby dumbbells was proved accurate. Mm, and yeah. Th- and the thing was, Bonnie was paying attention to what those newspaper men were saying. Because Bonnie's not perfect. See, Bonnie thought that after the prison escape, she'd be living a glamorous life on the run right beside her gangster boyfriend. Hmm. Sure, but that's also kind of of the line that Clyde sold her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's been like, it's going to be you and me, baby. We're going to hit these streets. We're going to go out there and never going to... Nothing but corn on the cob for you, (laughs) my sweet, sweet Bonnie Parker. Wow. Well, instead, as Jeff Gwynn puts it, Bonnie was the humiliated girlfriend of a bumbling baby dumbbell. Oh, dang it. Well, if she had gone on the road with Clyde, maybe she would have felt different. But she got none of the thrill that she expected. Because remember, she She just... She thought she was going to be... 
She thought she was going to be dating D.B. Cooper, but instead she's dating Kato Kalen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, after she, uh, after she got him the gun, she went back to her cousin's house and just sat there for days upon days upon days Aww. and then had to hitchhike back to Dallas from Waco, uh, which in 1930 was not a fun trip. No, that's never good when a young girl is sitting there like the old woman from The Notebook just trying to relive a past <laughs> that she doesn't have or remember. Mm-hmm. Well, as such, the romance of Bonnie and Clyde hit a cooling period while Clyde finally got his trip on the one-way wagon to the Huntsville State Prison Work Camp, a.k.a. Eastham, or, as it was known to the prisoners, the Bloody Ham. God, why? Why are all these? They all sound like potential bar names. <laughs> Love the bloody ham. I so this is where we enter the period of time that we visited a little bit when we covered Panzram, Carl Panzram, where the prison system of America in the early 1900s was fucking brutal, very very intense, and it didn't exactly rehabilitate people. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. see, the thing is about the Texas penal system uh, at that time was that parts of it were not meant to rehabilitate in any way whatsoever. Mm. The point of prison in Texas was to make it so fucking awful that not only would nobody want to return, but the people who spent time in that prison would spread the word about how awful it was once they got out. Right, right. Instead, though, like it always is, the prison system just ended up producing broken, desperate men who would rather die than spend another minute in prison. And much of that had to do with the policies of the general manager of the Huntsville prison system, Lee Simmons. Mm. That was, of course... Boys, you got to be up at 5 o'clock in the morning, and you're going to want to sweat to the oldies. If you are not sweating to the oldies at 5 o'clock in the morning, then I am sorry. You will be sweating to the oldies all day long. Yeah, but instead of Richard Simmons, it's a man that looks like Richard Simmons, but he's covered in swastika tattoos. And he's just, like, lifting his knees and being like, lift them knees for white power. Lift them oh, knees man. for white power. See, Simmons was particularly fond of a punishment called the bat, oh. which was nothing more than a greased leather strap between 18 inches and 3 feet long by 3 to 5 inches wide. Uh. This device would be used to whip the bare backs, butts, and thighs of prisoners, but it wouldn't be the guards who held the prisoners down. That job was left to their fellow inmates, who would hold them down spread-eagled on the ground while all the other inmates were made to stand in a circle and watch. Well, this is... Uh... This is our shout-out to our listeners over at kink.com. <laughs> um, this, is not, this is not a shameful thing no. uh, if you choose this. Yes, of course. You know? And no, thank you for fun. the subscription, by the way. Yes, absolutely. No, kink.com, wonderful. Up and, on the up and up, and everyone is safe, and everyone is having fun, and that's wonderful. Yeah. But if the guards at Eastham were feeling especially sadistic, they would pour sand into the gaping lacerations left by the leather. Ooh. And although the limit was supposed to be 20 lashes, guards never really bothered to keep count. They well, just kind of kept going until they wanted to stop. Then, once the prisoner finally passed out, usually after pissing and shitting himself, uh, the rest of the prisoners were made to line up and closely inspect the bat itself. Sometimes it said the other prisoners were made to actually lick it. Oh, lick what? it. Why don't lick they mention it? Uh-oh, I don't want to. I don't want to lick it. I don't. Do I have lick to? Lick it. I, I think you do. Is it a lick da- it. Are you daring me? How about we pin you down? 
And we use it on you. Get that over here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. And that's the sort of place Clyde Barrow was walking into at little more than 20 years old. Whoa. 20 and- years old. He is a country idiot. Right. He is five foot five. Right. He is 125 pounds. He is walking into the worst place for a pygmy to exist. Wow. Thing is, though, things didn't have to be as bad as all that for Clyde. Most first-time offenders were kept inside the main prison unit, known as the Walls. It was still awful, but at the very least, you could maybe learn a trade. Like, you might learn how to, like, take care of a horse or something like that. Cool. But repeat offenders, or wildly violent prisoners, were sent to Eastham Cotton Farm, 35 miles northeast of Huntsville proper, where men were made to work 10-hour days, seven days a week, with half an hour off on Saturdays for a bath. Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, again, it still happens today. Yeah. Yeah. And for reasons still unknown to this day, that was where five foot five, 125-pound Clyde Barrow was sent to Eastham. We don't know why. No well, one knows why he was sent there. He shouldn't have been sent you there. You don't think so? He was shooting at all the cops and stuff? He wasn't that well known. He, that's the thing. No. He was just in the paper, because that, that is what some people might maybe think, that that's why he was sent. But Clyde Barrow was not that well known down in Huntsville. Nobody would have known who the fuck he was. Uh, and he was still a first-time offender. And he was a fucking tiny little slip of a man. He was, And he wasn't like a tiny little slip that was wildly dangerous like Pee Wee Gaskins. Mm. Like, he was just... A kid. He'd stolen a couple cars. Okay. All right. Yeah, it sounds like it was just a bad streak of luck. Mm-hmm. It seems that he just kind of got randomly put into that pile. Yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah. So Clyde Barrow took his ride on the one-way wagon, chained by the neck to every other inmate on their way to Huntsville, Oof. and arrived on April 21st, 1930. The one slightly bright spot was that Clyde made a friend along the way. Is it a mouse? <laughs> oh, I hope it's a little mouse. Oh, he made friends with 19-year-old Ralph Fultz. All right. <laughs> it's no Fultz of mine. I get it, Ralph. It's really, but <laughs> it is fun. your fault, fun. Ralph. Yeah. Well, Ralph was sitting across the way from Clyde, and when the two of them got to talking, they found they had a lot in common. Are you getting like a big circular cut <laughs> from the chain around your neck? <laughs> yeah. Me too. This it's just amazing how just two <laughs> random people can meet. There's so many similarities. But Fultz had just escaped from Huntsville, and guards didn't take too kindly to returning escapees. Mm. Upon his arrival, Fultz was made to, quote, ride the barrel. Uh-oh. This punishment involves straddling a pickle barrel while handcuffed. Now, this doesn't sound too hard when you only got to do it for a few minutes, a few seconds... But Fultz was made to do it for an entire day and an entire night. And every time he'd fall hard to the ground, the guards would scoop him back up, put him back on the barrel for more. It's a tiny, because it's not like a huge barrel. It's enough of a barrel that your toes can stabilize you on top of it. So the rim of the barrel digs its way into your inner thighs. Right. So you said to the point you're so numb from the waist down right. that you you don't want to be unnumb mm-hmm. because once you finally get the feeling back, it's just pure torture. Right. Yeah. It's like when you uh, sit on the toilet for a little too long, legs go numb, you got to stay there longer just to avoid all the pain. Exactly like yeah. that. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. now you're living on the toilet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
But the guards were nothing compared to the monster that was B.B. Monzingo. No, <laughs> sounds like a character real... from fucking Blazing Saddles. <laughs> yeah, that's Monzingo, B.B. Monzingo. That's not a name. Henry, that sounds like a name that you would make up making fun of people who make up names. <laughs> yes. Yes. Monzingo had actually been fired from Huntsville Prison once before for unnecessary cruelty towards prisoners. Oh, my. This must... is, to be fired from Huntsville for being unnecessarily cruel. Yeah. You yeah. have to be a Nazi. Like, yeah. yeah. But when Simmons, you know, the guy who loved the bat, when Simmons became manager, he hired Monzingo back and put him in charge of Eastham. And gave him free reign to be as cruel as he liked. Because nobody went to Eastham. Nobody was watching Eastham. Those people could be treated however badly the prison decided they needed to be treated. So basically, Sheriff Joe Arpaio found his Darth Vader. Joe Arpaio is fucking nothing compared to these guys. I'm not going to tell Arpaio that because we don't need him to try to compete to be worse. Well, under Monzingo, Eastham came to be known as Little Alcatraz. Oh, my god! Yeah, it's like when Kevin Spacey was put in charge of a new upstate New York chapter of the YMCA, and they just call <laughs> it now the No Boys Zone. Right, absolutely. <laughs> and when Clyde showed up, Monzingo picked an inmate at random and smashed him in the face with a stick just mm. to show dominance. Just picked a dude, boom. All right, boys, this is how it's going to be. Could have done without that, sir. <laughs> and the longer- yeah. Yeah, I yeah. I definitely could have done without Lick that. Lick it. No, Lick it. Uh, I don't really want. Okay. You want me to use it? No. You're cute. You're funny. <laughs> hey, guys. My name's BB. I'm so excited to be here with y'all. It's going to be a fun <laughs> summer, isn't it? Um, who wants their dick chopped off? Oh, his voice is so fun, but then he's so mean. Yeah, it's funny how it works like that. Yeah. <laughs> And the longer that Clyde and Fultz spent working those 10-hour days, swinging axes, and enduring almost daily beatings from the guards, mm. the more they vowed to return one day, raid the farm, and set everyone free. That was what Henry was talking about earlier with Panzeram. Yeah. Right? Like, that's where the... Oh, wow. Well, that was everyone, that is, except for Ed Crowder. Crowder hmm. was a lifer and a building tender, and at over six feet tall and 200 pounds of pure muscle, Crowder stood above the rest in both size and in his capacity for violence. Now, a building tender, that means they would, the way they also sort of would do cruel mind games, is that they would choose some more of the violent members, also guys that have no chance of getting out, mm -hmm. to become little commandants. For mm. the prison guards. So they would be inmates that would have little, they would have a position of authority mm. over the other inmates and be given weapons and more food and more time off from their work detail. And all they had to do was keep people in line. Okay. See, since Crowder was a building tender and kept the inmates in line, the guards didn't really care what he did when he was in the dorm, dorm when he was in the dormitory at night. And Crowder was a rapist. Mm. And it wasn't long after Clyde Barrow arrived at Eastham that Ed Crowder began raping him almost every single night in full view of the other inmates. This was to Clyde? Clyde. Oh, man. Yes, and this is also the story of Pansram. We've seen this before. Yeah. People that, and he was deeply, deeply affected by this. And we wouldn't know the secret well into the 90s when Blanche, well, we'll get into the, the basically diary, the diary of several members of the 
uh, the actual gang, the set up Barrow gang, uh-huh. they revealed like because Clyde didn't want anybody to know that this happened to him. The fact that we're talking about this is like the ultimate punishment for him because he didn't right. he didn't want anybody to know, and this would end up right. you know we'll get into it. Interesting. So is that did he really turn here as a person? Oh yeah, because it went on for an entire year. Oh. Yeah, and the guards couldn't have cared less, and most of the other inmates either didn't care uh, or didn't, didn't want it have, to happen to them. Didn't have the power to stop yeah. it, and were happy that it wasn't happening to them. Oh, God. But after about a year, Clyde decided he couldn't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. So he teamed up with another building tender named Aubrey Scaly, who had almost as much of a grudge against Crowder as Clyde had. Scaly was another lifer, and he promised Clyde that if Clyde were to murder Crowder, Scaly would take the heat. So, on October 29th, 1931, Clyde hid a lead pipe in his pants during work detail and snuck it into the dorm. That night, Clyde walked into the bathroom by himself where he knew Crowder would follow. He he literally did the thing where he was just like, gonna go take a shower, make sure I'll wash real good. Like, like, literally, like, in full view of everybody, like, dropped a towel like it was Scarlett Johansson in, in, <laughs> in under the skin. Oh, my God. So he entices him into the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And then when Crowder walked through the door, Clyde swung the pipe down and crushed Crowder's skull, killing him almost instantly. Can we just celebrate one murder on this show? I'm thinking <laughs> Honestly, this, is, it's a this good is good. This is Clyde's one good murder, yeah. right? Yeah, Scaly then leapt from the shadows with a shiv and filled Crowder's corpse full of holes. Whoa! Yeah, and he, then uh, Scaly gave himself a cut on the ribs just to make it look good in the official report. Despite Crowder having a big fucking hole in his head, <laughs> uh, the official report said that Crowder had just lost a knife fight. Okay, yep. I guess that makes it he better. Did, I don't know. Okay. And with that, Clyde Barrow had gained a little bit of freedom, but it had come at the cost of a murder. Later, Ralph Fultz would say that at this point, he watched Clyde change from a schoolboy mm-hmm. to a rattlesnake wow. right before his eyes. Back home, though, other Barrows were doing pretty good. Okay. Oh, see that? <laughs> all right. See, see. All right. <laughs> Well, Henry Barrow had collected enough junk over the years to buy two lots along Eagle Ford Road in West Dallas, and it was there that the Barrows built a service station with two gas pumps and an outhouse in the back. Hell which, yeah! Which Clyde's younger sister used to brag was a two-holer. That's a double-holer! Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's a love seat. Wow! <laughs> yep, you can sit there with your buddy, you and your buddy counting your shits together. <laughs> That's a one. That's blunk. D- two. Plunk. Three. <laughs> Plunk. First one to five wins. <laughs> okay. Oh, shit, my asshole. My asshole fell out. <laughs> but even though Clyde's older brother, Buck, was out of prison, he was still technically on the run. Blanche had married him in July of 1931, but she was never quite cut out for the kind of life that Buck was leading. Now, Blanche wasn't quite as bad as the shrieking, panicking Betty that she was portrayed as in the Bonnie and Clyde movie. Hmm. And in fact, Blanche was quite pissed off when she saw that movie. Really? But but the thing was, the reason why she was most pissed off is because she was portrayed as kind of dour and a little plain, when in reality... Blanche was actually prettier than Bonnie. Come on! And I actually think Blanche actually looked more like Faye Dunaway than Bonnie did. Oh, come on! Yeah. 
I think Blanche was hotter than Bonnie. Yeah. And it's interesting to say that, but it's like, yeah, she was mad because the what you'll see is that when she's eventually caught, the picture of her when she's eventually caught, she looks like a friggin' movie star. Yeah. It's a crazy picture. Yeah. Yeah. It's an insane picture. But the thing was, is that Blanche, no matter what, she didn't like the life. She didn't like the life on the run. Right. Eventually, though, she and Buck's mother convinced Buck to turn himself in. Apparently, this just wasn't done. Because officials were so happy that Buck turned himself in that they just sent him right back to the walls in Huntsville. They didn't even send him to Easton. And they didn't even give him any further time on his sentence. They were just like, welcome back. Thanks for coming back. Saved us the trouble. So you're telling me, sir, you are here to turn yourself in. Is that correct, (laughs) sir? (laughs) I I have put myself on the return line. You are Here is my receipt. (laughs) Yep. <laughs> Ready for jail. Ready? Thank you for jail. Thank you for jail. Oh, all right then. So now both Barrow boys were incarcerated at Huntsville, but Clyde's world was a far cry from Buck's. Mm. Clyde was still in Eastham, which, as I mentioned earlier, was known as the Bloody Ham. Now, the reason why it was named as such was not for the punishment meted out, nor was it for the violence between the inmates. The reason why they named it the Bloody Ham was because inmates would regularly cut off fingers, toes, oh. sometimes even hands and feet in an attempt to escape the ba- backbreaking labor. That's how bad and it they, was. Geez. And they took it as like a punishment that was suitable. Like they, it was so matter of fact that dudes would cut their fingers off and their fucking appendages off to not work on the farm. And they'd be like, all right, like a, you'd show up and be like, I lost my whole hand to a. Uh, a field gator. There was a field gator out there. And they would just straight up be like, all right. And then they basically just kick you back to the walls. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was like a, an so admission if, fee. So if you cut off a pinky, they'd be like, all right, you don't got to be up until 11 a.m. That's fine. <laughs> Two pinkies. It's like, you don't got to be out of the place until noon. <laughs> wow, here you go. You're a jailer now. Here you go. <laughs> yeah, Ralph Fultz later said that in one particularly bad week, he and Clyde saw over 14 instances of self-mutilation. Jeez. And after over a year of backbreaking work, Clyde decided he'd had enough as well. Now, we're not sure who actually swung the axe, but on January 27th, 1932, someone cut off Clyde's entire left big toe and part of the toe next to it. Ooh, you need those. Yeah. Yes. And Clyde was officially off work duty. But the thing was... He didn't really need to do that. Uh-oh. Mm-mm. Dude, are you kidding me, man? <laughs> yeah, see, Texas uh, did and still does have a pretty bad crime problem. You know, it's always been kind of a lawless place, but after the Depression hit, things only got worse. And as a result, Texas prisons were wildly overcrowded. So to alleviate some of the pressure, because, you know, private prisons were not yet the norm in right. Texas as they are now. They didn't just send them all to private prisons. Uh, the governor on a pretty regular basis, took requests from mothers who wanted to see their sons pardoned. Uh-oh. And just six days after Clyde chopped off his toes, <laughs> no. yep. Governor Ross Sterling issued a pardon to Cumi Barrow's son, and Clyde walked out of Huntsville on a pair of old crutches and gained a limp that he would have until the day he died. Well, that is... Yep, the- he hobbled out. Of Huntsville, oh, and he, it took him a very long time to learn. Because what's weird is, and I've always, I'm like gonna be like, ah, big toe. Yeah, you can walk around a big toe. No way. And you realize actually, a big toe is like an important part. 
It's yeah. like a thing that really does keep you balanced. Yeah. It totally matters. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. I know. It's, you know what the big toe is? It's the thumb of the feet. <laughs> I'm calling it. Interesting. <laughs> One thing that Clyde said over and over again as soon as he got out was that he would sooner die than ever go back to prison. <sighs> and really, Clyde did try to go straight when he got out, at least for a little while. And his dream was to open an auto parts and repair store in the lot next to his family service station. But you got to have capital for that. Mm-hmm. So t- and honestly, he was apparently very skilled at fixing cars. Yeah. Him and all of his brothers were very, very skilled at this, which would become a, a very helpful later on in yeah. their criminal career. Mm-hmm. So Clyde tried getting outside work, make enough capital, open his auto parts store. But he had two things going against him. Or really, by this time, three things. First of all, Cops weren't leaving him alone. Just like before, every time Clyde got a job, cops would come in, haul him in on suspicion, and Clyde would get fired for missing work. Jeez. Then again, there weren't that many jobs to be had. The Depression had made its way to Texas, and the dust storms emanating from the Great Western Dust Bowl were suffocating large parts of the country, and black Mm. blizzards would envelop Dallas on a regular basis. This is the kind of shit that that really sets the scene for what this whole part of the world was like. You couldn't breathe. Like, it would be, the dust would literally fill the air so you couldn't breathe. And they said, essentially, Mm. it was a, they created an ecological crisis by over- grazing all of these grass fields it's not over grazing it's over tilling uh because yeah, okay I mean, sure yeah, yeah how how this how this happened was uh the great depression hit uh and crop prices plummeted and so in order to uh keep their land the farmers see what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to farm and then you let your and then you let the land rest and then you farm, and then you let the land rest. But because these farmers were trying to keep their money, they had to keep farming the same land over and over again. And the thing is about the grass out there is that that prairie grass was holding all the earth together. And uh-huh. so when they kept farming, kept tilling the fields, and kept tilling the fields, mm-hmm. that just created dirt that created dust and Mm. that part of the country is very windy so all that dirt all that dust i mean millions of years of grass that have been held together suddenly that is blowing all across the country in clouds so big Mm. that you can actually see them coming from miles away and they are black and it is full of dirt and the wind is blowing so hard and it's blowing the dust so hard that it actually cuts your skin fills the lungs people suffocate from dirt pneumonia their lungs fill up until they cannot breathe anymore and that was where Clyde Barrow was. That's where Bonnie Parker was. That's where everybody in the Southwest was at this time. Also, shout out to ICP and their new album, Dirt Pneumonia. That I think is fucking, it's, they're back. I love, I love it. I mean, it could do a good thing. Get your paint, get your car painted you know, nice and clean with a little, with a sand wash. That's not so bad. But no, it is never good when you're just driving through town and you're like Hunter S. Thompson following the derby race in the desert, mm-hmm. just covered with fucking sand. But you're yes. not a reporter. You're just trying to go to work. No. <laughs> yeah, these storms were so bad. Uh, people were having breathing problems in New York City. Wow. Imagine what the people actually in it went through. Oh. And if you out there are uh, interested in more about the Dust Bowl, read The Worst Hard Time by Timothy Egan. It's one of my favorite nonfiction books. I love reading about oh. dust and bowls. <laughs> he this does. Is a he always said, you've always said interest. that. You love dust. <laughs> I love dust. I love it. But, but the thing was, Clyde could have just left Dallas. 
He could have just left Texas. And he even attempted it once by going up to Massachusetts, but he said he damn near died of loneliness and returned after only a couple of weeks. And yes, it was terribly unfair and stupid and counterintuitive to a functioning society that the cops wouldn't leave him alone. But Clyde could have just gone to a different town. Hell, he could have just gone to Fort Worth. Fort Worth is 35 miles away, and he still wouldn't have been that far away from his family, who could have come and visited him whenever he wanted. It's not. It's about his pride, Marcus. Mm-hmm. It's about. It's about fucking like making it where you were born. Where you yep. stand. That's mm-hmm. his. That's his problem. Is that he was suffering these dumb ideas of you should be connected to the place where you are randomly born. <laughs> no, I mean I understand. I mean that's Fort Worth is. It's a great place to be. That's why Alicia Keys sang that song. Uh, you know. Fort Worth, where all the dreams are made of, and all <laughs> oh, that kind yeah, of stuff. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Her and Jay-Z. Because yeah. yeah. Jay-Z's from one of the more popular projects of Fort Worth. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I remember that yeah. Fort Worth rap yeah. scene. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, instead of doing that, though, Clyde decided that if the cops were going to brand him a criminal, then a criminal was all he was going to be. Mm. And that decision was made final when Ralph Foltz was released from Huntsville in August of 1931. See, all that talk about freeing prisoners from the bloody ham was turning out to be more than just idle chatter. Clyde and Fultz were 100% set on actually pulling it off. I like this. Honestly, man, these people are being treated horribly. At least they want to go back and try to save some lives. So, upon release, Fultz did a practice run of sorts. In January of 1932, he smuggled a bunch of hacksaw blades in the spines of a few magazines and helped bust his friend Raymond Hamilton out of jail. Once Hamilton was out, he and Fultz met up with Clyde in West Dallas, and the first of many Barrow Gangs was born. All right. It's not all right. It's not all right. <laughs> it's very bad. It's, this is, you know, it's people let me, born out of desperation. All right, I'll redo it. Oh, no. Is that <laughs> yeah, better? good, because people are about to start fucking dying. Okay, I, yeah. I changed yeah. my, I changed my tune. I've learned, are not cool. I <laughs> yes, know I, that I, they are not cool now. I know Marcus is booking in this episode with public shaming. <laughs> public Henry shaming of massacres? Yeah. No, of Henry and I, your two right. friends. <laughs> but what about Bonnie? No, that's not it. It's what about Barb? <laughs> what is wrong with you people? All right, I'm done. Well, while Clyde was in jail... Things between him and Bonnie, as I said, kind of cooled off. By the time of Clyde's first Thanksgiving in Eastham, the letters had slowed to a trickle and Bonnie had started seeing other men. But when Clyde was released from Eastham, the first place he went was Bonnie's house, where she was hanging out with her new boyfriend. Uh-oh. But yep. she embraced Clyde immediately, as if just a week had passed and the new boyfriend slunk out the back. <laughs> yep, you know why? Because once you go short, you don't abort. <laughs> uh, thank you, Ross Perot. <laughs> and when the time came for the new Barrow gang to go out on the road, Bonnie was as game as she could possibly be, ready for anything and everything. And over the next two years... 13 people would die as a result. And that's where we'll pick back up for Bonnie and Clyde Part 2. Woo! What a ride, man. This is going to be a great series. Oh, yeah. Get ready for some Foggy Mountain Breakdown this next episode because it's going to get fast. Again, I don't know what Foggy Mountain Mountain Breakdown mean. You you have listened to it drunkenly at my house many times before. Oh, the song. Great. Again, I thought we were talking about something disgusting. (laughs) 
No, dude, this is a part of America. This is a streak that has always been inside of America. Absolutely. This, this idea of the, I mean, I, I don't know what it is, something about the outlaw that we all still worship. We are all still like really into. We are into yeah. people, when people act bad. We like when they are, when they're naughty because a part of it is that we all feel we're kind of stuck in these little societal prisons absolutely where we're supposed to follow the rules and you pay your taxes you know do the shit and then somewhere along the lines you see somebody like this like technically living this sort of this dream yeah this idea of being lawless and being disconnected from the mores we're all forced to follow yeah uh, but you don't realize that there's a, a reality attached to it that right. is very bleak and the nice thing about living vicariously through characters like bonnie and clyde is at the end of it you don't die <laughs> you just yep. get to be like oh Oh, I'm going to go back into the bushes now. All is well. Um, awesome. Well, that is such really interesting. I had no idea about the. I mean, Clyde really had a he had a rough go of it. He had oh, a real it's rough. It's a go sympathetic of it, yeah. character. Obviously, again, uh, what they did was horrible, but very cool. Um, all right. Well, what do we have to do here? We have to say, come to see us in Australia. Yeah. We are going to be in Perth first, and we got some tickets available in Perth. We got a couple of tickets. Uh, what was the other spot there, Henry? That. Uh, Sydney. Sydney. The big one is Sydney. Honestly, it's so funny. It's our it is the biggest city. I guess it's the biggest city in Australia. It's the one where we need fucking asses to show up. We're pretty much sold out everywhere else. So come on out to Sydney. Yep. We're really excited. That's the city we're gonna be spending the most amount of time in. Can't I've wait. gotten a lot of good recommendations. I want people to tell me where to go in Sydney, but mostly people keep saying the zoo. And I uh, I I'm fine with zoos, but they're like like bar, I want bars in restaurants. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think they keep on saying the zoo because you talked about your love of koalas for about an hour and a half. And uh, yeah. people just wanted you to see koalas, which are evidently full of chlamydia and extremely dangerous and uh, quite dumb. Quite dumb, evidently. Going in little kisses, though. <laughs> <laughs> they are kissable. So, yeah, I mean, just keep on supporting all the shows here on Last Podcast Network. Abel can stop at this week. There's a lot of actually crossover with Bonnie and Clyde talking about poverty. Yeah. There's some, it gets. Oh, For some reason, the government believes it's really easy to be poor, and it needs to become more difficult. So I talk about well, that. They, they believe that the poor are living lives of leisure, and it's like yeah. laziness is why you're poor, yeah. which is actually, it seems to be the opposite, because yeah. I remember when I was much poorer, I seemed to remember working much longer hours. Right. I had three jobs at one point. Yes, absolutely. Um, so check out Top Hat. We want to get those numbers up. We'd absolutely love it. Um, page 7, Wizard and the Bruiser. Um, uh, movie signs with the Mads. You know where to find all the shows. Keep on supporting our network, please. God, it all—it's all because of you. So word of mouth. If you like a show, tell someone. Yeah, and don't forget about the story must be told. Yeah. If you like real, real weird shit, honestly. Uh, Reed and Andrew, Reed Failer, Andrew Short. Those dudes are two of our best friends for a long time, and they are fucking crazy. <laughs> I love. They them. are very crazy. That shit is like because we don't. You know, even as network owners, I listen to the other shows. We don't give a lot of notes. When I listen to that show, I'm just like, holy shit. They're just getting deeper and deeper to almost to the point being like, are they real? Do they really <laughs> believe this? <laughs> yes, they are doing a brilliant, uh, I guess, is it Inception? What do you call that? Uh, it's a definite It's a definite little universe that yes, they're building. Yes, little universe. And it's, yeah, it's, it's really great. It's very recommended. All right. So thank you all so much for supporting the shows. And I think that's about it. Yeah, I think that's all. All right, everyone, hail yourselves! 
uh, if you listen to this tonight, before you can, listen to watch the season finale of Your Pretty Face is Going to Hell on uh, Adult Swim or go on adultswim.com slash Your Pretty Face is Going to Hell to watch the episodes there. You can watch it. It all helps. We want a season five. So please help. Absolutely. Please. Support Henry Zabrowski. Your pretty face is going to hell. I watched some of the clips on Instagram, and honestly, this season looks absolutely hilarious. Um, what time is it at, Henry? Is it midnight? Midnight. 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 Um, all right, everyone. Hail yourselves. Hail Satan. Again. Let's do a Magoostillations here, can we? Magoostillations? All right. All right. That's fine. That's fine with me. Hail me as yeah, well. Sure. Honestly. Back is still not feeling good. Your mm. back is still not... You did it while sleeping. You hurt your back while I, resting. I have done nothing to fix it. Mm. So that might have something to do with it. Maybe go back to bed again, and then you'll I've wake up... I've just been on airplanes. Ah. Goodbye. That's fine. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. This is Comedy Bang Bang, the podcast, the promo, and in 30 seconds, I'm going to tell you why you should check out the show. I, the host, Scott Aukerman, have a lighthearted conversation with famous celebrities like John Hamm, Allison Williams, Phoebe Bridgers, Bob Odenkirk, just to name a few. Things go a little off the rails when different eccentric characters drop by to be interviewed as well. Each week is a blend of conversations and character work from your favorite comedians as well as some new hilarious voices. Comedy Bang Bang, the podcast. Listen every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley, in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.